Alright, good evening all. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is still the 26th day of January 2015, and it is Monday evening. Okay. Let's see, it's about 13 minutes after 8 p.m. Anywhere. Oh, let's see here. Uh, 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 yeah. If all that works out, we're live. You can participate by going to the chat room, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. And uh, look for the chat thing. And let's Nah, there's nothing else. Uh, you know, I'm looking at a cam here is why I'm getting distracted. And it is a uh, 
a live cam of Times Square, New York. Great picture. I mean, it's very clear, and uh, they have other. Somebody in the chat room put it there earlier, so I, I went and looked. And uh, the reason I'm looking is because, you know, there's supposed to be a humongous blizzard. It's supposed to be horrible. It's just, oh, my gosh. Well, you know, this is barely even blurry from what I'm seeing. I mean, this is really minuscule. This is if this is what they call a blizzard nowadays. Wow, these guys really uh, you know hit the wall on uh, their predictions. Maybe it's going to get a lot worse later, but you know it's already 11 p.m. in in uh, New York, so I don't know, man. Uh, you know, from what they said, it was going to be a lot, and not what they said, what they're still saying. Okay, what they're still saying. I mean, they're all the uh, well, here it is, blizzard night. Yeah, 28 million in the zone. That means the blizzard zone. Well, yeah, I'm telling you, it looks, you know, we'll have Dean Lauren on here in about 45, 50 minutes. He lives in New York City, so he'll be able to tell us, am I, am I, okay, am, are they just feeding me a false image of what's going on in Times Square? Or are the weathermen completely incompetent. I mean, you see, because at, at this point, when you have New York City, Boston, ban road travel, New Yorkers told to stay off the sidewalks, de Blasio orders indefinite street closures. Wait a minute. Really? For what? They haven't even gotten any snow yet. It looks like maybe they got an inch on the ground. Folks, you know, if you're going to, hey, <laughs> if this is what they're going to do, why not just say, well, uh, it's a weather emergency. It's sunny and warm, and everybody's got to stay in the house or else. That's it. We've decided uh, we don't want you traveling around today. An inch of snow? Hey, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they're feeding me a false image. That could be it. I sure hope that's it. Okay, I sure hope that's it because, you know, I'd hate to think that 28 million people just got scammed into a panic over nothing. You know, and I'm telling you, this is akin to screaming fire in a crowded movie theater. Why should these weathermen get away with this? But then again, hey. Maybe, maybe later, okay? 6,000-plus flights have been canceled. Well, I don't know, man. I'm going to have to see a little more, a little more snow on the ground to make that all, uh, you know, make any sense to me at all. Well, let's get to this story here because this, this is something that we have covered on Monday night with Dean and other guests that Dean has had on. And it's a big problem, and it's all around the country, and it's old folks getting taken advantage of by nursing homes and such. Well, here's a story out of the New York Times. Here's the headline. 
to collect debts. Nursing homes are seizing control over patients. Okay. Lillian Palermo, Palermo tried to prepare for the worst possibilities of aging. An insurance executive with a Ph.D. in psychology and a love of ballroom dancing, she arranged for her power of attorney and health care proxy to go to her husband, Dino, who was eight years her junior if she became incapacitated. And in her 80s, she did. Mr. Palermo, who was the lead singer in a midtown nightclub in the 1960s when her elegant tango first caught his eye, now regularly rolls his wife's wheelchair to the piano at the Catholic nursing home in Manhattan, where she ended up in 2010 as dementia falls and surgical complications. Oh, wait a minute. I think they've got this backwards. I think probably surgical complications went first, and then dementia and falls took its toll. Because surgical complications create dementia, and they make it so you fall down and all this other stuff because of the drugs they give you. They screwed this woman up, in other words. But anyway... He sings her favorite songs, feeds her home-cooked Italian food, and pays a private aid to be there when he cannot. But one day last summer, after he disputed nursing home bills that had suddenly doubled Mrs. Palermo's co-pays, and complained about inexperienced employees who dropped his wife on the floor, Mr. Palermo was shocked to find a six-page legal document waiting on her bed. It was a guardianship petition filed by the nursing home, Mary Manning Walsh asking the court to give a stranger full legal power over Mr. Palermo, Mrs. Palermo's now 90 complete control of her money. Few people are aware that a nursing home can take such a step. Guardianship cases are difficult to gain access to and poorly tracked by New York State courts. Actually, poorly tracked by any of the courts because this is a scam, folks. They like to rob these old people. First, they put them in the hospital. They get surgical complications, meaning the hospital screwed them up to where they have to go into a nursing home. The hospitals don't want to pay for it anymore, neither do the insurance companies. So then what they do is what? Rob you now of everything you own. Uh, Let's see. Cases are often closed from public view of confidentiality. But the Palermo case is no aberration. Interviews with veterans of the system and review of guardianship court data conducted by researchers at Hunter College at the request of the New York Times show the practice has become routine, underscoring the growing power nursing homes wield over residents and families amid changes 
in the financing of long-term care. In a random, uh, anonymized sample of 700 guardianship cases filed in Manhattan over a decade, Hunter College researchers found more than 12% were brought by nursing homes. Some of these may have been prompted by family feuds, suspected embezzlement, or just the absence of relatives to help secure Medicaid coverage. But lawyers and other versed in the guardianship process agree that nursing homes primarily use such petitions as a means of bill collection, a purpose never intended by the legislature when it enacted the guardianship statute of 1993. No, see, they expected their buddies at the insurance companies and their lawyer pals to be able to rob the old people. They never expected that the nursing homes would get in on the deal. Gee, that's just not right, is it now? Anyway, goes on. At least one judge has ruled that the tactic by nursing homes is an abuse of the law, but the petitions, even if they are ultimately unsuccessful, force families into into costly legal ordeals. You know what, folks? People need to. And you know, when you're dealing with something like this, it's not. I know it's hard and it's tough and it's really not fair that you have to, but this is the world we live in and life ain't fair. The thing is, you're going to have to learn this stuff, folks, and you're going to have to learn to counter-sue. If they pull something like this, don't try to defend because you'll never win when you defend. Defenders never, ever, ever win. The best a defender can ever do is fight to a draw. Think about it. It doesn't matter what it is, what it's about, Legal or otherwise, a defender never can win, okay? They can never win. They can only fight to a draw. That's the best a defender can ever do. So what do you do? You know, somebody files against you, you're a defender. Yeah, well, it's called countersuit. And when you countersuit, you go first. So guess what? You're not the defender this time. And if they lose their legal things, sue them for your costs. It's a strategic move to intimidate, said Gina Lisa Monterosa, who handled patient Medicare accounts at the Mary Manning Walsh Nursing Home until 2012 and is now chief executive of Medicaid Advisory Group, an elder care counseling business that was representing Mr. Palermo in his billing dispute. Nursing homes do it just to bring money. It's so cruel. Mr. Palermo loves his wife. He's there every single day, and he just threw, and they just threw him to the courts. Brett D. Nossbaum. Yeah, what's that? What, who does that sound like? Boy, that sounds like a good Jewish lawyer, doesn't it? A lawyer who represents Mary Manning Walsh and many other nursing homes said Mr. Palermo's devotion to his wife was irrelevant to the decision to seek a court-appointed guardian in July when the billing dispute over his wife care reached a stalemate with an outstanding balance approaching $68,000. Yes, we're the nursing home, and we just decided to double your rate, and uh, you don't like it? Tough luck. We're going to sue you. The Palermo case is no different than any other nursing home bill that they had difficulty collecting, Mr. Jew lawyer said, I mean Nossbaum, estimating that he had brought 5,000 guardianship cases himself 
in 21 years. You know, this guy is worse than an ambulance chief. You know, if I was him, I'd be afraid to give out my name because, I don't know, uh, if I had a mom or somebody I cared about that got a scumbag like this trying to ruin their life and steal everything they got, I might go after him. I might I might make him a missing person, Mr. Knockbomb. You know, uh, luckily I don't have anything like that. So, Mr. Knockbomb is safe from me, but, you know, I don't know, 5,000 guardianship cases. You know, it's just hard to believe that not one of those 5,000 people had a family member that had enough gonads to take Mr. Nothbaum to the cemetery. I, I'm just, I, I'm shocked. But anyway, when you have families that do not cooperate and an incapacitated person, guardianship is a legitimate means to get the nursing home paid. This is what the Jew lawyer says. You know, and Jews wonder why people hate them. Sorry. You know, it's just a, it's just a fact, you know. You want to keep being a scumbag, money-grubbing piece of garbage. Well, you know, people are going to, after a while, say, you know, gosh, every, every Jew I meet this money-grubbing piece of garbage. And, you know, now, I'm not saying every Jew is. But if you're somebody who has only met Jew lawyers and this is what you come across, you're going to get a bad attitude, just like, you know, just like if every time you walk down the street you get mugged by a black guy, you're going to start having a low opinion of black people. You know, and, and this is not something that, you know, okay, all black people are bad and all Jews are bad and all, every, all everybody ain't anything. But the thing is, it doesn't matter. This is how the world works. I'm shocked that not bomb is allowed to keep walking uh, around. I'm just <laughs> – guardianship transfers a person – a person's legal rights to make some or all decisions to someone appointed by the court, usually a lawyer paid with the ward's money. It is aimed at protecting people unable to manage their affairs because of incapacity and who lack effective help without court action. Legally, it can supplant a power of attorney and a health care proxy. You know, you got to wonder about the scumbag that wrote this law, huh? Although it is a drastic measure, nursing home lawyers argue that using guardianship to secure payment for care is better than suing an incapacitated resident who cannot respond. Mr. Palermo, 82, was devastated by the petition brought in the name of Sister Sean Williams. <laughs> brought in the name of Sister Sean Williams. The Carmela Nunn, who's the executive director of Mary Manning Walsh. Are you kidding me? So nuns are suing incapacitated people to get that money. He says it's like a hell. Said last fall, speaking in the cadence of a southern Italian village where he grew up in poverty in the in a place. Never in my life I was sued for anything. I just want to take care of my wife. Court evaluator eventually reported that Mr. Palermo was the appropriate guard and questioned why the petition had been filed. But the matter still dragged on, and Mr. Palermo, who had promised to pay any arrears, 
once Medicaid completed a recalculation of the bill, grew distraught as his expenses fighting the case reached $10,000. In the end, Medicaid's recalculation put his wife's monthly copay at $4,558.54, almost $600 less than the nursing home had claimed, but still far more than the $2,642 Mr. Palermo had been paying under an earlier Medicaid calculation. As soon as the nursing home cashed his check for the outstanding balance, it withdrew the guardianship petition. People are it's like the mob. They chose to use strong-arm method asking for somebody to be appointed to take over her funds, hoping for a rubber stamp to do their wishes. Many judges go along with such petitions, according to lawyers and others involved in the process. One judge who has not is Alexander W. Hunter, Jr., a longtime state Supreme Court justice in the Bronx and Manhattan. In guardianship cases in 2006 and 7, Justice Hunter ordered the nursing homes to bear the legal costs, ruling they had brought the petitions solely for the purpose of being paid and stating that this was not the legislature's intent when it enacted the statute known as Article 81 of the Mental Hygiene Law. Good for him. Last year, Justice Hunter did appoint a guardian in response to a petition by Hebrew Home for the Aged at Riverdale, but in his scathing 11-page decision, he directed the guardian to investigate and to consider referring the case for criminal prosecution of financial exploitation. The decision describes a 94-year-old resident with a bank balance of $240,000 who had been unable to go home after rehabilitative treatment because of a fire in her co-op apartment. Her only regular visitors were real estate agents who wanted her to sell. After Hebrew Homes' own doctor evaluated her as incapable of making financial decisions, the decision says the nursing home collected $50,000 check from her. It sued her when she refused to continue writing checks. You know, I'm telling you, man, I'm really, really, I'm shocked. I, I am shocked that these people, that there's nobody nowhere that hears about this and says, oh, you know what, I, I really am I'm kind of upset today and I don't have much to lose and I think I'm going to go visit this person and see if he uh, want to go for a walk at the bottom of the East River with me. I, I, I mean, I'm, <laughs> you know, does this sound outrageous to you? Am I, am I overreacting uh, or... Is it? Does it make you sick that these people, these scumbag lawyers, and the fact that the legislature of New York wrote such a thing to give them the authority and the ability to do something like this, even though they say, oh, this was never our intention. Well, okay, maybe not, but nevertheless, you know, uh, man. Uh, I'm just, uh, I'm amazed. I'm really amazed at the tolerance some family members have. I, I, I don't know. I guess it's the same thing I don't understand about how, you know, they come and take people's children away from them and uh, say, well, you know, oh, well, it was nice knowing you, kid. Uh, it's too bad about, uh, you know, things didn't work out. And, uh, maybe we'll see you. Maybe you'll come around when you uh, grow up after you've been raped and pillaged at the uh, 
you know, many foster homes that you're going to go to under your state protection. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in a bit. things in this world are more important than clean, pure water. Understanding this, ABR makes four tabletop water distillers available to you for purchase. First, we have the five and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $139. The second is a five and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $189. The third is a three and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $189 and our 
premier tabletop distiller is a three and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $250. All our distillers have a stainless steel boiling pot, dome, and cooling tubes. And the premier version also has a splash flap to protect against contamination of the cooling tubes. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com for more information and protect your water supply. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays at 6 p.m. Pacific. Denied internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be dependent on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free to air satellite system from ABR. The ABR system includes a receiver, an LMB, and a 75 centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System. I'm 
some of them might be infected with diseases that have been eradicated here. Yeah. Warning flyers were posted at the Costco and nearby Walmart that the shopper reportedly visited. On January 18th, the shopper may also have visited a nearby restaurant. You know, and who is this shopper? Where did this shopper come from? A recently released study documented lower levels of vaccination against the once-considered eradicated viral disease among the graduate-level educated and lower-income communities in Northern California. Though reasons varied for under-vaccination, some parents cite controversial connections to debilitating health side effects from the vaccination as a part to opt out of their children receiving basic vaccinations. Yeah, I'd rather get measles than paralyzed or a stroke. Thanks. Given the choice, I'll take the measles. Public health officials have now started urging adults to seek a booster, even if they have had the shot series in the past. Well, wait a minute. I thought you're immune forever. That's what I was told when I was a kid. Last week, Huntington Beach High School sent two dozen under-vaccinated students home as a case of the disease hit their school. The California Department of Health website lists 68 confirmed cases of the disease as of Friday, some with links to the Disney outbreak. The same report lists 10 cases outside California, including Arizona, Nebraska, Oregon, Colorado, Washington, Utah, and Mexico. Mexico? Hey, what in this list doesn't fit? I'm hoping they meant New Mexico. Listen, folks, here's the thing. If your children are vaccinated then they're safe. They don't have to worry about all the unvaccinated people posing this serious, horrible danger. Right? No? Why do we all have to be vaccinated? If I don't want to be vaccinated and I want to take my chances, that's up to me. I'm not putting anybody else in danger. If you want to get the vaccination, go right ahead. I hope you enjoy your wheelchair. But the thing is, you're protected from all those diseases now, right? Because that's what the vaccines do, right? Is protect you from these diseases, correct? Because you know what? If that vaccine doesn't protect you from these diseases, then what's the point? What, you get your kids vaccinated? So, oh, uh, hey, I don't want those unvaccinated kids in the school with my children. They're a danger to my children. Well, hey, wait a minute. What danger? You just got your children vaccinated. They're safe. They're protected. No fears for you, huh? Yeah, but you see, we all know that's BS, don't we? And one thing they're leaving out of all this is that most of the people coming down with measles have been vaccinated for measles in the past. Guess what? It ain't working. Guess why? Because you're not getting any immunity. Do you know why you're not getting any immunity? It's very simple. And it's not, you know, look, there's, there's many issues about vaccines. All the garbage they put in there, the mercury, all the junk they try to get rid of and just pump into your body like fluoride in the water. 
yeah, they just stuff it in the uh, vaccination. Say, oh, no, mercury's good for you. It's good for you. It's a stabilizer. Yeah, it stabilizes everything. I mean, you've got a mercury deficiency anyway, so, you know, there you go. The reason why the whole idea of vaccinations are flawed is because they completely bypass your immune system. Okay, your immune system works naturally. You get exposed to germs and viruses and bacteria through your nose, through your mouth, through your eyes, through your ears, through the orifices of your body, and through your skin. You do not naturally get exposed to these pathogens by people jamming needles into your body. So here we go. Okay. Your body's set up to where, okay, here comes a a virus, and you breathe it in. Now your body goes into action. And, yeah, you might get a fever. You might get feeling pretty sick because your body's fighting this off. And then when it's done, it's all over. Now you have a natural immunity because your body has been able to assimilate what this virus is all about. Now, hey, okay, now I can deal with it. However, now let's take this virus and just jam it through your skin and straight into your blood system. Hey, guess what? Yeah, you're going around your whole immune system and shocking your system. Yeah. Uh, this is another reason why people end up paralyzed, having strokes and all that, because all these poisons, all these pathogens, all these viruses and bacteria is a huge shock to your system the way it's exposed to it, straight into the blood system. It's a flawed system, and they know it's a flawed system because they're telling you, oh, well, you know, even if you've got the measles vaccinations, you need a booster shot because it's not working anymore. Why is that? Why is that? Oh, oh, I know why. Because it never worked in the first place. Gosh, I'm so sick of these people with their vaccination crap. They're so full of, you know, it's like the GMOs. It's the same companies, too, folks. Well, here's something that should cheer you up. Edward Snowden. Tells us a little more about things as if, oh, who'd have guessed this? Wow, I'm shocked. I'm shocked, I tell you. Edward Snowden says Apple iPhone has secret eye feature, which allows the government to spy on you. Oh, I'm shocked. Oh, my gosh. Let me sit. Oh, wait. uh, I'm already sitting down. Good thing, because, man, would I? Oh, I probably would have just passed out if I wasn't already sitting down. Yeah. Oh, what a surprise. (laughs) You know, of course, Apple denies everything because, you know, if everybody figured Apple was spying on you for the government, probably less people would want your idiot phone. That is what the I stands for, folks. Got one. (laughs) Sorry. Anyway, uh, let's see. Uh, 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 iPhone has a special software that can activate itself without the owner having to press a button and gather information about him. That's why on security grounds, Edward Snowden does not have an iPhone. 
let's see. Of course, Apple's denied claims that it participated in NASA's PRISM data mining project after accusations were made when Snowden released NSA documents that its devices are vulnerable to spying. The leaked documents revealed that the NSA operates an iPhone backdoor surveillance program that allows officials to snoop through virtually any communication center received using an Apple product. Well, golly, I'm sure the folks at Apple had no idea. I'm sure they're shocked. Shocked, I tell you. Uh-huh. Well, here we go with the Republicans. Yep. Less than a week after Obama's delivered his State of the Union address to Congress, his job approval rating reached 50% in Gallup's daily tracking conducted Friday through Sunday. This is the first time since the president's rating has returned to that level in Gallup's ongoing three-day rolling averages since 2013. This comes as Republicans have backed down from several immigration campaign promises as they seek to govern rather than follow through with what they said they were going to do. You know what, folks? These people need to be thrown out next time. I don't care, man. You know, you want to vote for another Republican, pick another Republican. Pick a different one. But if they've been in Washington and they made a promise and they didn't fall through with it, you know what? Throw them out. Republicans in late 2014 in the lame duck session of Congress passed a 1,774-page, $1.1 trillion Cromnibus spending bill that funded Obama's executive amnesty, despite prior campaign trail promises that almost every Republican candidate and Republican National Committee chairman rinsed previous that Republicans would block funding for it. No one member of Congress had time to read the text of the Cromnibus bill before voting on it. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? It wasn't until the new Congress was seated in early 2015 and after a nearly successful coup attempt against Speaker John Bonehead by 25 Republicans in his conference that the House passed the Department of Homeland Security spending bill that blocks funding for Obama's executive amnesty. You know... It's it's a disgrace, folks. It's a disgrace. And and what what do you expect? Now here's somebody that the United States Congress is backing and the government is backing. Well they have to back because well we promoted well, we didn't promote it. We actually carried out the coup in the Ukraine to overthrow their legitimate government and put in our puppets. Well guess what? Ukraine's gonna have some problems here. Because China paid the Ukraine $3 billion two years ago for grain that's still not been delivered. Now they demand a refund. Another $3.6 billion that's owed to China will probably also default. Yeah, Russia's RIA Novostai News Agency reported on January 17th that China is demanding refund of $1.5 billion in cash an additional $1.5 billion in Chinese goods that were paid in advance by China in 2013 for a 2012 Chinese order of grain from the Ukraine, which goods have still not been supplied to China. It is 2015, by the way, folks. According to RIAN, 
State Food and Grain Corporation of Ukraine, State Food, supplied grain in 2013 elsewhere, but not to China. The new Kiev authorities had an opportunity to fix the short-sighted actions of the previous regime and to present a positive economic image to the Chinese, but it didn't happen. Furthermore, prior to the president, presidency of Yakanovich, which started in 2010, China's leadership had simply refused to do business with the pre-Yakanovich administration's Yulio Tomashenko, Tomashenko, and they planned to wait till Yakanovich became president. He then came and since has been ousted by the United States, and yet still only $153 million of grain has been delivered. None of the $1.5 billion cash that China advanced to the Ukraine to pay for growing and shipping grain has been returned to China. But only the $153 million that has essentially been swapped Chinese goods for Ukrainian grain. This $153 million was approximately as much as the interest that would be due on China's repayment, prepayment. And so Ukraine still owes China the full $3 billion. But guess what? They ain't going to get it. It goes on to quote Alex Luponswo, whatever, I can't get this thing right, a Ukrainian authority on Ukraine's banking system, who says Ukraine won't be able to supply the grain to China because we don't have it. The reason he gives is that there's a big shortage of technicians, combiners, adjusters, mechanics, farm machinery operators. All of them were taken by the Army. Those men are being required to fight in Ukraine's anti-terrorist operation. That's occurring uh, in Ukraine's former Donbass region the place where the residents don't accept the new Ukrainian government's legitimacy. Yeah, because it's a U.S. puppet uh, government that overthrew the legitimate government. And they are therefore being called terrorists by this new government, which is thus bombing them, supposedly in order to convince them that the new government's authority over them is legitimate. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, there you go. That's how you convince people that your authority is legitimate, is to start killing them. Well, you know, uh, if that's the way it is, perhaps the American people need to enforce the legitimacy of the American people's authority over this government. You get what I'm saying? If that's the way it is, that killing legitimizes your authority, well then... Oh, but that would be that would be bad. That's terroristic to think of that, unless of course you're the government. Then it's okay, folks. Man, we've got real problems. So, you think a snowstorm's bad? Wait till you get a load of World War Three. You better prepare. Anyway. I'll be back in a few minutes with Dean Lauren, and he is in New York City, and he can tell us all about the horror, the horror of the snowstorm that, well, unless I'm getting false images from Times Square, it doesn't look like much. Stay tuned, folks. Put it out. Another day. I don't care what others say. They think we don't listen anyway.
Does the cost and risk of conventional health care concern you? Wouldn't you prefer inexpensive solutions to health problems rather than disease management? If so, tune into Herb Talk Live with herbalist Wendy Wilson every Tuesday and Thursday evening, 7 p.m. on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, where your health care options just became endless. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays at 6 p.m. Pacific. Few things in this world are more important than clean, pure water. Understanding this, ABR makes four tabletop water distillers available to you for purchase. First, we have the five and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $139. The second is a five and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $189. The third is a three and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $189. And our premier tabletop distiller is a three and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $250. All our distillers have a stainless steel boiling pot, dome, and cooling tubes. And the premier version also has a splash flap to protect against contamination of the cooling tubes. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com for more information and protect your water supply. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from ABR. The ABR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541 541- Two two five four six five nine. That's five four one two two five four six five nine. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click the satellite system.
All right. Welcome back, folks. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Steffen, and you're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It's still the 26th of January, 2015, and it's about 10 minutes after 9 p.m. Pacific time. If that all works out for you where you're at, given your time zone, we are, in fact, live. Go to TheAmericanVoice.com or AmericanVoiceRadio.com. You can participate in the show from there. If you go to the chat room, you'll see the uh, link. Click it. Go on in. You can ask questions, make comments. You can also call in 800-596-8191. All righty. It is the second hour of Monday evening, and as is our usual thing, we have a co-host. Dean Lauren, and he is coming to us live from New York City, which, of course, it is already tomorrow there. Dean, we need the breaking news. We need the horror, the horror of the massive, massive blizzard that you are experiencing. Well, Frank, thank you for bringing us on to another 99-cent report. And... uh, I think Lydia Radin was on last week, correct? Yes. And uh, to deal with your blizzard update, (laughs) we have a massive four inches of powder. (laughs) Dean, why I I ask this and why I'm, I'm, I'm making a joke of it is because I have right here on my screen the Times Square cams from Earth Cam. And I'm looking at Times Square live right now. And I got to say, man, this does not look like a blizzard to me. Uh, Frank, people have gone crazy, massively crazy, and are making snow angels on sidewalks. <laughs> so let's talk about the news. <laughs> well, I thought uh, that was the news. I mean, gosh, Dean, have you looked at any websites? It's all about not, your blizzard. Let's not waste time. Let's go right to what you should be focused on. Okay. Uh, Okay. For the next three months until the uh, spring equinox, we are going to be discussing the the result of the mortgage bubble, which has incurred across the United States high property taxes for real estate, homes. And uh, we will, and just to focus further on that, that this mortgage bubble was caused by a series of banks which were bailed out and that were using computer algorithms developed by MIT and Harvard. So the main focus for the executive branch of the United States is now to reduce across the nation real estate property taxes on homes. What is not reflected is that these property taxes were deferred for corporations and universities, and that was built into the computer algorithm for MIT and Harvard. The second aspect that we will discuss for the next three months will be uh, the agriculture 
takeover of the United States that began in 1986 and why the price of food in the United States must be reduced by about 15 to 18%. It's overinflated, uh, just like the high property taxes. And again, these are results of the MIT Harvard computer algorithms that were developed in 1986. And uh, it's important. So let, let, let's start with... Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let me get this straight, if I understand what you're saying. Property taxes were deferred, which means you don't have to pay them now. You can pay them later. And now that they're coming due what was owed before and is coming due to be paid, they want to lower them? No. They're Okay. Property taxes for corporations and uni uh, universities were not just deferred, they were um, forgiven. And they are, and this was the scam that went down. Well, now, I have a, I have a personal reason why I'm, I'm interested in this and why I'm questioning this uh, so much, because uh, as of, oh, I don't know, uh, probably two years, Maybe uh, maybe three, but definitely two years ago, Sprint, who provides my T1 connection for AVR, put a new thing on my bill, $15 a month, for me to pay for their property tax. And it says so right on there that this is $15 a month to pay for their property tax. Now, if they didn't pay that property tax, they stole that money. And if their property tax has been forgiven, they owe me that money back. That's absolutely right. So what, what you're actually seeing is an additional tax placed on so, – so the actual real estate property taxes for Sprint were forgiven. What you're seeing are the uh, higher FCC offsets that were passed on to you in the form of these quote-unquote real estate taxes. So they are lying to you, Frank. And stealing. Let's not forget that. And I'm glad you brought that up because we're talking about the two major issues facing the United States right now. Higher property taxes, which are false and inflated, and agricultural prices for food items that are inflated and you have to look at the basis of this and of course the underlying reason is currency as Frank is so apt to put it fiat currency now I would like to speak to every trucker and to every farmer out there and every mother who has a family that she has to take care of right now across the heartland, that under no conditions can the American natural gas and oil that is a result of fracking 
can it leave the United States until 2017? That oil and natural gas, which, which is not really natural gas, it's gas derived from radioactive waste and explosions under the ground, which have left massive contaminations of our aquifers with uh, thorium and radon, uh, that gas and oil that is being extracted is what is supporting the American dollar right now. If that gas and oil leaves the ports or is delivered to the ports of the United States, it de facto becomes the property of Germany. And therefore, New York no longer has any assets, tangible assets, to back the United States dollar. Now, the reason why we are focusing on this unto the equinox, that's Easter for everybody, is that the Swiss franc, that's in Switzerland, uh, is not only overvalued, but it is based on trillions of dollars of tax evasion money, stolen money. That is not doing a, anything for the euro. The Norwegian kroner, which is uh, also inflated, it is now going to crash. So what I, I, I want to explain to everybody out there in the heartland is that the currency for Switzerland and Norway is crashing fast. Those are the two currencies which are backing the euro, dollar. And I don't even know if it's called the euro, dollar. It's just called the euro. And by Easter, since this is a Christian network, everybody seems to know when Easter is, you are going to see the fall of France. And you are going to see people literally throwing the euro in the sidewalks and sweeping them with brooms like they did in 1927. Well, now, you, you, you I'm sure, saw the news that Greece, the uh, party that basically has said, hey, if we get in here, we're out of this euro and we're not giving you any more money, uh, they won. Absolutely, Frank. And you know where Greece is going to get their money? From the Leviathan oil fields. It's not the Leviathan. It's the Levantian oil fields off of Cyprus, which Greece owns, not Turkey. So you are now going to see the rape of the Mediterranean Sea with thorium fracking which is why Israel is bringing Netanyahu to speak before the Congress. Now, it is very, if we look at the statistics for currency that is stolen or, or tax evasion currency, as I like to call it, you have uh, about 
let me get the numbers for you because they're fresh off the printing press. The Swiss, of all their currencies in their banks, 33% are from tax evasion from Americans and others abroad. Britain, 33% of their currency is based on these offshore banks laundering money. Israel, 46% of their currency reserves are based on hidden tax evasion assets. Now, Netanyahu would like to come to Congress and discuss how he can ramp up military spending under McCain to bolster the Israeli economy because they supply all the communication networks in the military hardware. Unfortunately, when he comes to speak, there are going to be some issues brought to the table concerning Israel's permitting tax evasion dollars, drug laundering from the Lower East Side of New York, the rape of America's hospital systems monies going to Israel. And I have a feeling that Netanyahu is going to cut his speech extremely short or may not give it at all. Because President Obama and the executive office are not playing. And they're not backing down. Well, they're not very happy with this whole thing. They they've made that clear that they're not they're not thrilled with what Bonehead you know did here by inviting him you know without uh, you know going through what they call the proper Fred, channel. This is a Christian network. That's Johann Boner from the Bon Nation. All right, he's German. Well, I got nothing against Germans uh, per se, but you know the thing is, it's like uh, not that you have anything against them; you're just not for them. Oh, I'm not for anybody, Dean. Uh, if you're not an American, I'm not for you. Well, I'm glad to say that because, uh, folks, when Germany went to take over America's toll bridges, it was Mr. Johann Boner. Bonner, excuse me, the Christian network that allowed this to happen, although it failed. Carl Levin, who is going to be the subject of our second half, was in fact the great architect of the Great Recession of 1986, I mean, of uh, 2006. Now, folks, it is not. 2008, you are now starting to see the Great Recession referred to in all the media papers. Mm -hmm. It is not 2008. It was 2006 when Carl Levin engineered the collapse of Detroit. Well, Dean, you know, I mean, this this is an ongoing, I mean, this is the same thing that everybody, it always happens. It's like, well, you know, people say, yeah, the Depression, 1933. Well, actually, you know, it started before, even before the stock market crash. That's you know? right. But and that's what makes it all kind of crazy that these so-called pundits, 
at the New York Times keep getting it wrong on purpose instead of focusing on the pedophiles. All right, so I want to, first of all, apologize to this Christian network. Frank raked me over the coals. (laughs) And uh, so I have started to screen my music. Oh, yeah, yeah, you bad man, you. I forgot about that. So I want to apologize, and so tonight I am going to dedicate tonight's song to Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, he, I know who he is. He's the new guy in uh, Saudi Arabia. Well, he is the son of the king of Saudi Arabia. Yeah, well, ding dong, the king is dead, so, you know, he's the No, that's king. Abdullah. No, this is the new one, Prince Salman. Bin Abdi Assad, and his son, Mohammed bin Salman, is in charge of the national security. And his great job is to see Crown Prince Mohammed bin Naif in 2030, he will start ascending to the throne of Saudi Arabia. And he will take the crown in the 2040s. So we're looking at 30 years of peace if Prince Mohammed bin Salman does his job. Well, now, wait a minute. This guy coming in right now is 70-something, isn't he? 71. Ah, you think he's got 30 years in him? He's got 10 good years. Yeah, maybe. That's true. And then there is his successor. Crown Prince. Mukin. So and he has his he has his succession. Who is he? Uh in relation. He is another son. Boy, they really keep this in the family over there. Oh no, no, he's not a son. He's a son of the prior ki- uh, uh, of the original ruler. Oh, okay. Wow. They're all brothers, half brothers. So the reports you're reading about instability of Saudi Arabia, facetious. And so with that, I'd like to dedicate tonight's song and to let people understand that there was a time in my life when uh, uh, I lived in, I actually rode my, uh, I had a Spanish barb, which was a uh, champion barrel racer. And I rode her from Baltimore to Blacksburg one summer. And uh, I remember one day that I was riding the ridge above Price's Fork on the fire trails, and it was wonderful, beautiful. Fire trails about 12 feet, 15 yards wide, clear through the mountains, all dirt, and now, no rock. And now you live in the big city with a huge blizzard going on. Well, <laughs> I say this because one, I remember one day being late for work, and I used to work at Daddy's Money down in Blacksburg, down in town, and used to hang out at Cowboys, So, which was face, the, the two back doors were faced to the bars. And so me, of course, late for work, decided to ride my horse, full tilt boogie, across the mountains, down the fire trails, across Virginia Tech campus, while the campus officials were kind of looking out their windows, and I was going full tilt boogie across their 
campus lawn with all with all my horse, and I of course saddle uh, tied her up to cowboys. The bar back door to Daddy's Money, so it wasn't exactly show up at Daddy's Money because Daddy's Money was a punk bar. So with that, I dedicate this song to everybody, especially Prince Mohammed bin Salman. And, you know, it always has the proverbial question, you know, was I late for work? (laughs) So hit it, Frank. All right, here we go.
in this world are more important than clean, pure water. Understanding this, ABR makes four tabletop water distillers available to you for purchase. First, we have the five and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $139. The second is a five and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $189. The third is a three and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $189. And our premier tabletop distiller is a three and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $250. All our distillers have a stainless steel boiling pot, dome, and cooling tubes. And the Premier version also has a splash flap to protect against contamination of the cooling tubes. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com for more information and protect your water supply. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays at 6 p.m. Pacific. Denied internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC didn't use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be dependent on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free to air satellite system from ABR. The ABR system includes a receiver, an LMB, and a 75 centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541 541- Two two five four six five nine. That's five four one two two five four six five nine. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click the satellite system. Thank you. 
Middle Eastern Drum and Congo. I can't even figure out what that name was. So I, I heard you at the end there. Well, that's that, right. And that folks, I was on time. Now, the second song there nobody got, and that was Route 66, very popular song done lots of times. That version was by somebody very famous, Nat King Cole. Okay, so it wasn't a Wow, that was when he must have been young because his voice didn't have that timbre yet. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was. Had uh, to be old. like 1930. Oh, I don't know about if it's that old, but uh, it's old. Well, I'm. let's talk about dates because, you okay. see, folks, right now you're, there's a lot of misinformation being rewritten into history. And unless you can figure out the the real chronology of what's going on, a lot of things are misunderstood. For instance, it is in Wikipedia that oil was discovered in Saudi Arabia around 1928-26, in all the textbooks, actually, when, in fact, oil was discovered in Daman, which is in Saudi Arabia, in 1901. And what happened was uh, the oil company staged some rather uh, Arab springs in Bahrain, which is the island off of Saudi Arabia, or, you know, in a pretend move to have certain uh, families uh, move to Saudi Arabia. And, of course, at that time, the rulers, uh, and now you're seeing their sons on the throne, um, made way for them, you know, uh, uh, and offered them land to live in. And they immediately, these refugees from Bahrain, these royal refugees, refugees, chose Daman, which, thank the Lord, was the first sites where Standard Oil found the oil. Amazing. It's such a coincidence. 1901, folks. It was the same year that the Farley family from Rockland County, just across the border from New Jersey, engineered the assassination of President McKinley so that Roosevelt could take the presidency, Teddy Roosevelt, who was backed by Standard Oil. So you, you have to really understand that 1901 is a real pivotive point because Farley family, he was a postmaster general, used to read everybody's mail. That's how they knew or kept track of everybody in the United States because everything went by post or telegraph in 1901. Mm-hmm. Not so much the phone. No. All right. So, and that brings up, you know, Comcast, the new star, but we'll talk about them next week. Because right now, I think it's very important for Americans, and I'm talking about you, truckers and farmers, and you mothers out there that are sitting at your table trying to figure out how to keep the roof over your house some food on the table, and your kids, you know, strong enough to make it through the day. And out of prison. Let's not go there, friends. (laughs) And 
right now, Obama is arriving in Saudi Arabia from India. And he is going to meet with the new king. And it is very important. Yeah, you know why I think he's there? Want to hear more? Well, let's say why it's important and what he should be doing. That when the president of the United States enters the palace, he should be flanked by the highest ranking Chinese official to his right. No, let's say to the left, because we have to honor Chinese culture. Everybody in China will understand why this man must be on the left. And the reason being is that there is only going to be one thing that is going to make Saudi Arabia Arabia happy right now. And that is and we're talking about King Salman right now, is when Obama delivers the motto to Beijing as a gift for King Salman. And there is an old quote from one of the most devious thieves in history, Benjamin Franklin, who created the fiat currency in America. And it's a great quote. And it says, uh, when you have three men in the room, you're safe when the other two are dead. So we're looking at New York. Now, Mario Cuomo used to sit in the room with Joseph Bruno and Sheldon Silver. Bruno and Silver were run by D'Amato. And to a sense, Cuomo. Cuomo is dead. Mario Cuomo is dead. Sheldon Silver is now being brought up on charges. Bruno, he's destroyed. But he's alive. Sheldon's alive. That's two men in the room still alive to knock on the motto. I leave it to Frank. Tell me, why do you think President Obama is visiting the king? Well, I think he wants to make sure that the deal is still the deal. Uh, You know, you're going to keep pumping out all this oil. You're going to keep driving down the uh, price of oil. You're going to put all these frackers out of business. So, uh, you know, the seven sisters can come in and buy everything at auction for penny on the dollars, and then it's back to business as usual with the whole gang controlling the deal again. Well, I'll modify that with one point. The seven sisters are now... I know, they're four or so, but still, the same... Oh, wait, no, there's still seven. There's still seven. And you, you forget, there's one problem, interest rates. They borrowed a lot of money and are sitting on a ton of money and they hate to spend their own. So these bargain basement prices 
are not going to be available until that fracked gas and oil hits the export liquefaction plants in Texas, Louisiana, Maryland, and Massachusetts. So I'll modify your part of the deal, Frank, to which the president is now requesting Saudi Arabia to drive the knife into the Seven Sisters who ordered the Arab Spring of 2006. Now, folks, Jeb Bush's campaign just hit the dust. Good. Well, you could thank Prince Andrew of Britain, the pedophile. Now, although his accuser did not see President Clinton with an underage girl, she knew the underage girl he was betting on the plane. She didn't witness President Clinton betting this young underaged woman. She only watched the tape. So that's kind of what you call heresy. Heresy for Clinton, heresy for her. Well, I don't know. You know, when you watch a video, that's kind of seeing it. I mean, granted, the video could be doctored. It could be uh, a Disney film. But, you know, I mean, chances are, you know, if you saw a video, I don't know if that qualifies completely as hearsay. 2001, towers going down. Oh. Cement going to dust. That's my, right. my Lord, you said that? Yeah. You forget too quickly. That's true. Hearsay. Don't you remember the motto is, we never forget? That's a Jesuit motto. We never forget. We never forgive. And I'd like to say to everybody, and this is especially for King Solomon. Je suis Iroquois. Now, everybody knows I'm Cherokee. But you see, that's a play on words. It was, it was developed by the Jesuit from uh, the fur guys that were doing Canada. I forgot the name of their corporation. And so they would call the northern tribes of America the Iroquois, the northern kings. Mm-hmm. And the Chinese, and the Chinese, and the Cherokee, well, and the southern kings were called the Sur, South, Qua, the southern kings. So those are the tribes below the Mason-Dixon line. And so the Siroquois, who, who really like to play with language just like the Chinese, they, of course, turned to the French and said, no, we're the Cheroquois, your dear kings. We are the ones that are permitting you to be in this nation. 
Little did we know that France would stick a knife in our back. We should have known. You should have known. So with that, Jeb Bush's campaign hit the dust when BP and Shell and Standard Oil ordered Arab Spring. Which brings us to good old Carl Levin, the man who killed Detroit and who started the military spending spree to jack up Israel's gross national product of communication equipment in within all of the armaments. So you see, if Carl Levin had not pushed the spending from 2000 to 2006, America would not be in debt. We would not have to rely on the fracked gas and oil to support our dollar. You see, right now, Germany's economy is falling. But how could you say it's falling when they don't have a military defense? They must be falling commercially. And for Germany to fall commercially means they are deep, deep, severe cracks in the facade of the Bundesbank. We are watching with the fall of oil the destruction of Germany. The nation that wanted to take over America's toll roads and charge every American for the right to drive on the roads. Right. How dare they? That's Uncle Sam's scam. Hey, you got to pay for the upkeep. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and have you been on any roads recently? Uh, it doesn't look like much upkeep's been being done. Got a very big point, Frank. I think we're going to have to talk to Jimmy Hoffa Jr. of the Teamsters because they're the ones cracking the roads. Yeah, I got a I got a truck driver friend that says, man, they're up there and they're repairing roads, and three months later they're all cracked up and falling apart all over again, and they got to repair them all over again. So to me, that reeks. Wait of a minute, bad material. Yes. Cheap asphalt and plus the salt that they're putting down on the road is dissolving the um, the binder, which probably so might as well not even throw down the asphalt, which probably is watered down and that's why it's not lasting. It's remember we used to cover the cheap cement, yep, where they used to you know a good cement is like three or four bags a pound a yard. I mean, uh, actually five yard five, five bags a yard. And uh, so what they do is they short it down to two and a half, and then they they use the other two and a half for another project. So they undercut the, the cement, which is going on right now and all over China, which is their biggest threat right now and the agriculture problems that are coming up. Because um, the U.S. Asian Business Council, which is basically the seven sisters, and we will talk about that next week, because I, I realize a lot of people don't realize that Royal Dutch Shell, BP, Stan are one of the three. Well, they are the seven sisters. Well, and then there's Exxon Mobil that used to be separate, but now they're together, you know. 
Well, I think ExxonMobil was always part of Standard Oil. Well, yeah, so, back in the day, but then they well, broke that. Now, we're running out of time, Dean, and there's something else I want to uh, cover, and we're going to have to get into it for more uh, next week, but I want you to look into this because, uh, you know, you spend quite a bit of time talking about, you know, China, because China's a major player, and the Ukraine is is an important uh, crossroad. And, and the, steel manufacturer. Sure. And China's really upset right now about getting stuck, basically robbed by the United States' little, uh, you know, puppet government in the Ukraine for over $3 billion because China paid $3 billion for grain that the Ukraine has not delivered, and they cannot deliver. So they're real upset about this, and, uh, you know, who knows what they're going to do about it. But, you know, I'm sure China's well aware that the Ukraine is just a puppet government of the United States, so I don't know how that's going to play out. Oh, no, the Ukraine was targeted by Germany. Crimea was supposed to go to Russia. Ukraine was supposed to be taken by Germany. And, of course, the Russian wild card came up. Well, so yeah, but now yeah. you understand, Frank, why I urge the oldest ranking Chinese officials who walk in on Obama's left when he enters the palace. Because in Chinese culture, it is the left hand that holds the contract. That's the most powerful side of the contract. Think about it. All right. And, uh, well, we're out of time, so we're going to play the song, and we'll be back next week with Dean. I'll be back again tomorrow. Dean, thanks for being on. And, folks, as always, thanks for listening. Healthcare concern you? Wouldn't you prefer inexpensive solutions to health problems rather than disease management? If so, tune into Herb Talk Live with herbalist Wendy Wilson every Tuesday and Thursday evening, 7 p.m. on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, where your healthcare options just became endless. Few things in this world are more important than clean, pure water. Understanding this, ABR makes four tabletop water distillers available to you for purchase. 
First, we have the five and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $139. The second is a five and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $189. The third is a three and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $189. And our premier tabletop distiller is a three and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $250. All our distillers have a stainless steel boiling pot, dome, and cooling tubes. And the premier version also has a splash flap to protect against contamination of the cooling tubes. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com for more information and protect your water supply. This call is from a federal prison. I was raised to believe that the American dream was about pursuing happiness. As much as I hate to admit it, my happiness occasionally counted on the freedom to consume various substances. But it was the legal substances that changed my life forever. Now I question the motives that go into creating our modern drug laws. And the people who have been elected to protect us have become some of the people I fear the most. And when it comes to drugs and alcohol, just say no. We have allowed the government to declare a war on drugs because the majority of Americans haven't known any better. And they haven't really understood that all of this is a massive deception. It's a massive profit scheme. We must wage what I have called total war against public enemy number one in the United States, the problem of the dangerous drugs. They can't even keep drugs out of, out of the prison system. You know, they have guys in prison that own beans and, and, and things of that nature, even in the home. What, what's happening here in America is that our government is inadvertently supplying the hard drugs to the people in this country, then they're putting the people who use them in this country in jail. Fixated on terror, most Americans have forgotten they are fighting another war. Watching niggas But from its inception, the drug war has become the longest, most costly and destructive war in American history. The drug war is a perfect continuing example of why we will never win the war on terrorism. Because it captures the ineffectiveness of the U.S. government, and it captures the fact that it's being used against poor people and not against the people who benefit most from drugs, which are the bankers that launder the money. Now, we don't send nicotine addicts to jail. We don't send alcoholics to jail. We shouldn't send drug addicts to jail. Oh, my God. Do you mean they'll legalize marijuana and you can buy heroin at 7-Eleven? People have to realize that most of our history, we didn't have federal laws against the use of drugs. $50 billion a year at the local, state, and national level, clogging our courts year after year. So, I mean, people fighting the drug war need to articulate that what we're after is not blanket legalization, but decriminalization. Why in the world do we have millions of innocent young people wasting away in prisons 
when the big people who are committing these huge, atrocious crimes are getting away every day. My own personal opinion, I think the jail cell is better than the rehab. This uh, year is the 30th anniversary of the Drug Enforcement Agency. It was created by Richard Nixon in 1973, and Richard Nixon is really the creator of the drug, uh, this drug war 19, from 1971. With every passing day of this drug war, the battle line seems to be getting harder and harder to see, and yet it's almost impossible to believe that the same rules apply to everyone. sometimes addicting drug, drug and free America indeed. But why do they do that? They spend huge money to reinforce the distinction between legal drugs on the one hand and illegal drugs on the other. I had lost two family members and a best friend in a very short span of time to alcohol, cigarettes, and legal prescription drugs. So fearing that I could be next due to my own struggle with addiction, I wanted to find out why the drug war seemed to be such a huge failure. When Nixon started the drug war, I was far too young to understand its implications. Living in white Texas suburbia, growing up in the 60s and 70s, I consider my childhood to be pretty average. An older sister and brother, a stay-at-home mom, and a father who ended up being a top executive of a big corporation. For us, the drug war was something that had no bearing on our lives. And even though my parents were both heavy drinkers, they never crashed a car, never lost a job, never missed a mortgage payment. On the contrary, my parents were pillars of responsibility. 
symbols of the post-World War II generation who had earned the right to live and drink the American dream. There has never been a society in the history of mankind, as long as mankind has walked the face of the earth, that has not had some form of mind-altering, sometimes addicting drug to use, to misuse, to abuse, or even get addicted to. Unfortunately, my brother Kurt didn't inherit my parents' ability to drink hard liquor, and when combined with some of the illegal drugs that the other members of his rock band used, he would often become violent. When I was about six years old, Kurt gave me a hit of acid, promising me that I would see green monsters. You down, man, the yellow bees, man, and, and the cocaines and the marijuanas and diet pills, you know, start controlling your mind, start controlling, you know, other things in the atmosphere because of your intoxication and thoughts, you know. As it turned out, it was only an allergy pill, but shortly after, Kurt's behavior landed him in the state hospital where all the doctors convinced my parents that acid and marijuana had caused my brother to become a paranoid schizophrenic. The drug problem is, is, is devastating to a lot of people. Uh, drugs do not discriminate, they do everybody. When Nixon created the DEA, they started the national drug schedule. Schedule number one being the most dangerous drug with zero medical value, down to schedule five being the least dangerous with medical value. We all know what happened to Nixon, Nixon's history, but we all know that, uh, that uh, he used the demonstrators to, to divert attention from his, uh, his illegal bombing of Cambodia. Look at the context in which these drugs erupted into the culture in the 60s. We were conducting a, uh, a vicious war in Southeast Asia. Where did this policy come from? Unfortunately, I have conducted an inquiry into this, and I have determined that drug prohibition laws came for reasons of racism, empire building, and ignorance. I mean, in Nixon's mind, I think drugs were associated with not liking Nixon. Nixon's new drug scheduling put marijuana in the most dangerous category, side by side with drugs like PCP, crystal meth, and heroin. People in the United States didn't have any idea what marijuana was, but it began to be associated with those Mexicans. In an attempt to keep me away from drugs and my sick, addicted brother, my father enrolled me into the Boy Scouts. It was at the acclaimed Philmont Scout Ranch that I had my first exposure to getting high. Clearly, going back to uh, high school, for me, uh, we were not going to be able to lock up 80 million Americans uh, for having tried uh, illegal drugs. If the DEA decided to crack down on all pot smokers and force everyone to take a piss test, enforcing this law would require building prison walls around almost every city in America. I just uh, see such a corollary between uh, the war on drugs and uh, prohibition of alcohol. Uh, we tried the prohibition of alcohol, and I don't think anybody in this country wants to return to that. And yet alcohol is unbelievably uh, destructive uh, for a small percentage of people who, who imbibe. Prohibition was an attempt by ideologues, similar to the ideologues that we have today, to impose their moral values on the rest of the country. And what they discovered was that it creates crime waves. My name is T. Rogers. 
I am the CEO of Sidewalk University and the founder of SELF, Survival Education for Life and Family. I also help start the Bloods on the West Coast. Savvy, streetwise marketer, 
uh, who started selling cocaine, and then suddenly some major sources opened up for him. At the height of Rick's operation, he had over 40 full-time employees in Los Angeles alone. He had cook houses, cash counting houses, rock houses, decoy houses, and even a house he lived in. Cooking was always our most vulnerable and our most time-consuming uh, uh, thing to do. Usually you could put it in uh, like a big Samsonite suitcase. You could put 100 keys just about in one of those, or maybe two of them. So that's what, that's, that's what we normally cook every night, like 100 kilos. Rick shares some good down-home cooking tips about rocking it up. Well, the way we did it is I, I basically was a chef. You know, I, I did all the stirring. I would tell the guys who to mix. Like one guy, he would be standing there, and I would tell him, add more baking soda, uh, pour more water, you know, that type of situation. So it was more, yeah, it was like an assembly line. I know this is nothing to joke about, but Rick is your all-American opportunist. And as the media told us, crack was now the big new opportunity. You know, we had houses where you basically would uh, go up to the window and, and it would be served right out the window, kind of like the way McDonald's does it, I guess, because we had uh, houses in so many different locations. Basically, you know, I wanted a location. I wanted it to be convenient for, for the people, you know, where they wouldn't have to drive for. It was kind of like marketing, I guess you would say. The gangs evolved, and the gangs were a great business venture. They're basically marketing tools. That's, that's really what they were. Uh, and they were quietly promoted behind the scenes. They got a lot of money. Uh, they got a lot of power. They fought for drug turf. Everyone's working for somebody else right now, legally or illegally. In order to film people selling and using drugs, we would have to go undercover. So we met up with an old friend of mine who was living very close to the most infamous spot in all of Los Angeles. Yeah, put that one in back in, in your, like, funny little case I made you. All right, this is San Julian, right here. This is, like, a free spot. I walked down San Julian, and we will get all that. That's the juice music. Yeah, all that. This is Tim Sue right here. This is San Pedro right here, which is, like, San Pedro, Grand. All This is just nothing about drugs. This is considered a neutral territory. To gangs, like, all different gangs, Bloods, Crips. Yeah, but you should put that camera down. My friend Mac Lindsay agreed to pose as a homeless guy and film people smoking crack in Skid Row. Dude, if these people knew what we were doing, we would be dead. Yeah. I mean dead, not even like beat up, we'd be dead. One Thanksgiving, my brother came home from a halfway house. My aunts, my uncles, my young rich cousins were all there. No one could have been prepared for the moment Kurt pulled out a crack pipe at the dinner table and started smoking rock during the three-meal prayer. There's a thing called a bail. You get your bail wrong. That's when you, when, you, when you hit the pipe and you hold it. And you hold it for so long that something inside of your head, it rings. After the first hit, you go on the, that's the highest you're going to really get. That is the highest you're going to get. Uh, they call ringing a bell. <laughs> <laughs> After that, you have a, a, an increased appetite for cocaine. And you want more, and you want more, and you want more. And you tell yourself, I'll just take $10 or $5 to buy me a little hit to sustain myself, to hold myself off. But after you get that little hit, you want more, and you want more, and you want more. Then that's called chasing the rock. Drugs can obviously cause horrible addictions, but the drug war creates black markets, creating an even more dangerous addiction for money. 
But I became addicted to the money and also the power, too, I believe. You know, to be in charge and to have people look up to you and talk highly of you. Big names like Freeway Riggs going down. People actually want to be like him because they, they don't think about joy. They just think about the money. But what about those people whose lives are still affected by the Los Angeles crack epidemic? Someone that wants to get in a program, someone that wants to get away from this lifestyle, easily can do it. What Easily can do it. I mean, if, 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 they can, if they can just overcome the addiction. Many people in Washington will tell you that the crack epidemic ended in the late 90s. But according to Sergeant Lou Daigle of the Los Angeles Police Department, crack sales are stronger than ever. Um, basically on San Julian, you can come and everyone's selling and everyone will either be attached to look for you and bring you to a, uh, to a buyer. Um, a, lot the, a lot of the buys go on intense. Um, we've even had some intelligence that you know, gangsters will come, gangbangers will. Basically, every gangbanger comes down here to make money. Right. Okay, they come down from the inner city, they come down from East LA, they come down from everywhere, all the different rival gangs. And very rarely, actually, is there a shooting. Uh, Although Freeway Rick remains locked up, many people still blame him for Crack's easy availability. One time, uh, I went over to this lady's house to drop her off some drugs, and it was the look that the little boy had in his eyes, you know, as if, man, he's taking food out of our refrigerator. You know, we're not going to have anything to eat. And I thought about it, I said, man, I was putting him in the same position that I was running from. You know, I basically was running from poverty. That's basically how I got tied up in, in, in the drug business, because I never wanted to be a drug dealer, you know, when I was growing up. At one time, I even wanted to be a police officer or a firefighter. I think the drug war is going to be lost. You can't win a drug war by prohibiting things that can be made in your bathroom with stuff bought from a grocery store. Back when I was in college, we used to cross the Mexican border to buy pharmaceutical speed. We thought it was strong, but it was nothing compared to the crystal meth that put in. Sergeant Daigle spots a man smoking meth out in plain sight. He may have been tweaking a little too hard to realize that he was using directly in front of the police headquarters. Uh, what about uh, the methamphetamine? Yes, yes, yes. Blackout, psychosis, uh, um, yeah, uh, illusions. Putting my wrist, things like that. Really? Yeah. Um, Let's see. Seeing things, demons and stuff. Pretty realistic. Very realistic. Today, the DEA claims that crystal meth or ice is the new epidemic replacing crack because of how long it lasts and how cheap it is. Oh, meth is much better. Meth is, uh, you get more energy, you can do more things, you can uh, last longer. Flying over the Mojave Desert, it's hard to imagine that a modern-day drug epidemic is taking place in rural white America. What am I in here for? I'm in here for possession of dangerous drugs. Which was? Um, which was methamphetamines. No, I'm just a drug addict. Drug addict? Yeah. What do you think? I mean, do you think being in here is helping your addiction? methamphetamine saved my life, man, because, you know, I, I didn't have to, I didn't have to use coke anymore. I fell asleep with the wheel pulling out of my parking lot of my house. 
and I woke up to the police being there. And underneath the seat of my car was 11 cents worth of, of methamphetamine. And they, they convicted me of that. Phoenix, Arizona, a single man has created a kingdom fighting meth and other illegal drugs. With four landslide victories under his belt, very few sheriffs have enjoyed the job security of Sheriff Joe Arpaio. What is this, a documentary on drugs? You either love him or hate him. And in Phoenix, if you hate him, you keep it to yourself. Don't touch that, or you, if it's electric, you'll die. We don't screw around here. This isn't Texas. <laughs> All right. The reason I'm the toughest, because see these guys, right? Yep. Pink, where's your pink underwear? I got it. Let's see them. How come they're fading? They don't got no news for me. I asked Mr. Apollo, they just don't got them. Can we just start with you just like telling me your name and who you are? I got to tell you in front of these guys, they don't know who I am. <laughs> Joe Arpaio, Maricopa County, Arizona, sure. This is the largest tent city in, in the United States, probably in the world. I would almost bet half of these guys are here for drugs. You see this? They can only mail postcards, get away with their envelopes. And on a postcard, that's me. We put the uh, inmates and the, I mean, the dogs in the air-conditioned jail. And these guys are in the hot tents. It says that while inmates live in a hot desert, tent city, rescue dogs live in air-conditioned comfort, right? Let me sign this. Everywhere I go, I sign these things for these guys. I spent uh, 32 years fighting drugs around the world. I was a director in Mexico, South America, had offices in Panama, worked with General Noriega, had offices in Argentina. I was the only federal agent in the Middle East. Now we have armies out there. My job in uh, Turkey, I lived in Turkey, was to stop the French connection. And we did stop the French connection when I was a director in Mexico. We arrested the top guy in Asuncion. Uh, Although he and his men still arrest people for crack, a newer drug has long since taken the lead. We have a big methamphetamine problem right here. You can't blame Mexico for methamphetamine when we see 50 laboratories right here in this county. What is it about crystal meth? Methamphetamine is easily made. You can make it anywhere in a motel room, in a car. That's one reason. Methamphetamines, I mean, it's all chemicals, you know, and it's the one that is the epidemic of. Oh, Arizona, I know that for sure. Phoenix and Mason, Tempe, Chandler, all the surrounding areas. I know it's an epidemic here. Is it a sign of the times that the newest drug can be cooked up from common substances found at hardware stores and pharmacies? During the 1920s prohibition of alcohol, bootleggers profited by cooking moonshine, a very dangerous homemade alcohol. In prohibition, the government forbade legal booze people created moonshine. Is crystal meth the modern-day moonshine? What we ought to be doing with regard to methamphetamine is we ought to be engaged in a real educational campaign to tell people just 
how dangerous methamphetamine is. Don't you think the drug war could be kind of held responsible for the fact that meth has become so popular, the fact that it's harder to get cocaine into the United States because of the drug war, now we're giving a rise to synthetic drugs? No, 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 no. These guys will use any drug they can get that has no bearing on it. Can I ask them, who would rather do cocaine or, or speed? Tweak speed. You guys do speed? Why do I think it's become so popular? I mean, it keeps you going. You can work a long time. You can stay awake. Have great sex. What's it come down like? I don't know. I never stand down. Heroin makes you nod and get in traffic accidents. Uh, marijuana makes you sit on your couch and speed puts you in the pathway. That's your opinion. As governor of the state of New Mexico, um, half of what we spend on law enforcement, half of what we spend in the courts, and half of what we spend in the prisons is drug-related. Self-made millionaire Gary Johnson shocked the citizens of New Mexico when, after being re-elected to a second term, denounced the drug war and tried tirelessly to introduce harm reduction strategies. Former Governor Gary Johnson's in this film. Who's what, he? What? He was the governor of New Mexico trying to legalize drugs for eight years. Oh, yeah, that's the. That's why he's not the governor anymore. Well, he was eight years. Um, <laughs> but what do, you, what do you think about him? What do you think would happen to America if drugs were legal? Well, you know, that guy... I, in fact, if I knew he was going to be on your camera, I probably wouldn't even be talking to you. Because that's a defeatist attitude, this guy. That's right, New Mexico. You should never have a defeatist attitude and give up because you say you can't solve a problem. So let's give up on uh, bank robberies. and Let's make everything legal. The way I look at it, basically, is, is that we have gotten to where we've gotten today, and I think it's because of politicians, and drugs have become the easy boogeyman to uh, to put all blame on. I'm the only politician, if you want to call me that, that will tell it like it is. The judge ordered me to go to treatment, and I'm not able to go to treatment, so this is what I'm getting instead, chain gang and county jail. Are you afraid you're going to... I'm afraid I may if I don't get into a drug drug rehab right away, like within the first 12 hours of my release. Are we going to ever eliminate the methamphetamine use? No. But can we reduce it? Yes, and we can do that through education. But that doesn't have to include a locking people up for its use. When you look at 2 million people in prisons and jails across the nation, about 60% are in there for drugs or drug-related crimes. And when it comes to uh, federal prisons, I know that that number is, is much higher because of federal mandatory sentencing. This isn't a prison. This is a jail. The prisons are the country clubs. That's where some of these guys could end up, and I'm sure so. Anybody been to the Department of Corrections? Which one you like better, here, the jails or the state prison? quick so they can get to prison. I was raised believing that incarceration was expensive to the taxpayer. It was not in anyone's best interest to lock someone in a cage unless it was absolutely necessary. In the mid-1980s, a law was passed that allowed privately owned corporations to build and operate prisons. I'm a real advocate of private prisons, having privatized half the prisons in New Mexico. And the reason for doing that is, uh, is the same goods, same services at uh, a third less the price. 
have we reached a point of building so many prisons that the purveyors are now looking for ways to keep them all full? Here's the way a private prison works, okay? You pay somebody to build a fancy cave. Then you fill it up as far as you can get it, which is pretty full. Full of people that the people that built the cage get paid forty or fifty thousand dollars a year to just keep in the cage. Yeah, corporations like Wackenhut, you know, they just changed their name, Corrections Corporation of America, that house prisoners, nonviolent drug offenders. As a matter of fact, I think sixty percent of the increase in prison population under Bill Clinton, which was like a million people, of the sixty percent of that new prison population are nonviolent drug offenders. Now if you've got 5,000 people in your cage and you're being, you're being paid 30, 40,000 bucks a year for them. That's a lot of money. And if you can, on top of that, use them as your private property, as chattel property, that you can then make do work or make produce things that you get paid for on top of that. What a great deal. Now, where I come from, when you transform a person into a piece of property, that's called slavery. Not far from Bakersfield, California, is a small town of Taft, once home to a thriving oil industry. But like so many oil towns across America, the oil finally dried up. Like many bankrupt towns, a private prison stepped in to save the day. The Taft Correctional Institution is owned by the GEO Group, formerly known as Wackenhut. Wackenhut changed its name after a storm of bad publicity. The GEO Group is the leader in providing diversified services to government agencies around the globe. Our global expertise in outsourcing includes the design, construction, financing, management, and operation of jails, prisons, and special purpose institutions, and immigration and detention centers. They trade their stock on Wall Street based upon the number of people that are in jail. If that isn't sick, if that isn't the best definition of sickness in a society, in a culture, in a civilization, I can't tell you what is. Serving time in the Taft Federal Prison is actor-comedian Tommy Chong of Cheech and Chong. Trying to get into the privately owned prison to interview Tommy was not unlike dealing with any other major corporation. Months went by as they kept asking me to jump through endless hoops, and if I didn't know any better, I could swear they were doing everything possible to get rid of me. But Tommy wasn't just an icon of drugs. Sitting in prison, he was now a symbol of things to come with the new conservative fever sweeping the nation following 9-11. The transmitter on the ground, Are you guys here from Texas? Then? Yeah. Austin, man, no wonder. <laughs> Old Willie Town, huh? Tommy Chong arrested for pot, right? No. Tommy was targeted by former Attorney General John Ashcroft, whose Operation Pipe Dreams had trapped the 65-year-old actor. Tommy's son was using his dad's face to sell bongs on the Internet and was baited into shipping a glass pipe to a county that prohibits them. In his attempt to shut down the paraphernalia industry and send a message to Hollywood, John Ashcroft made an example out of Tommy, proving that even a rich movie star is not untouchable for the DEA. I'm Tommy Chong uh, of Cheech and Chong. It's like a royal title. The privatized prison business is, is big. It's a slave labor market. We get these little jobs and we work, we get like $15 a month low end. It, it provides employment for depressed rural areas. So, so you get a place like Taft, you know. If it wasn't for the prison, there would be no, there would be no industry here. You know, the oil industry is gone, long gone. 
there's nothing else here, you know, except that maybe the ground squirrel industry. Conviction rate is almost 100%. And people that are doing the longest time here are the ones that had a strategy, that went to court and fought it and lost. You know what it did? I'll tell you what it did. It, it made me feel like a black guy. <laughs> was for a long time just another crummy little town in West Texas. And it's treated black people and Hispanic people in a real crummy way for a long time. It's not any different than towns throughout the South and probably the Midwest. It's got a large church-going population. It's got a very uh, tight-knit community of white people. And it's got a small outside community. It's not even really a community marginalized black and brown I'm kind of the chief redneck out here because I am kind of prejudiced and I admit it and everybody is uh, you know I'm not unique I am unique in that I understand who I am and attempt to control that which Christians are supposed to do but any any guy that puts his pants on one leg at a time and says he's not prejudiced I say, come with me, and I'll take you someplace and show you some people that you will be scared on your first impression. Civil rights attorney Jeff Blackburn witnessed how the lure of lucrative drug war funding enticed an entire police force to make illegal arrests. All of a sudden, overnight, there was this massive roundup, well-publicized, often all over the TV stations, where uh, one-tenth of the town's black population was uh, escorted in handcuffs to jail. We were told that this was the most massive rural drug conspiracy ever uncovered uh, in West Texas. It was due to the sterling police work of an individual cop named Tom Coleman, who was a hero. The Tweet newspaper ran, not an editorial, I'm sorry, it was a news story. There was headlined, Tulia Streets Cleared of Garbage. When all the major media sources, including 60 Minutes, covered the Tulia story, they told of a lone redneck cop by the name of Tom Coleman who hated black people. But who was Tom Coleman working for? When you followed the trail of money, he was merely a pawn of a law enforcement policy that profits from making large arrests. So there was this thunderclap arrest and sweep of the black community. I landed 46 people in jail, uh, nearly all of whom were black. Then, of course, they quickly started getting processed through the system with court-appointed lawyers, with all-white jurors, and we began to get sentences like 99, 75, 320 years, out of control, over-the-top, Texas, typical small-town sentences for drug dealers. Yeah, I sat in jail for five months before my lawyer was came to see me. He told me, he said, one thing you can do for me in the olden days, uh, you had legal lynching. This was uh, this was legal lynching on a whole new level. This was ethnic cleansing uh, combined with the need to get grant money. The problem in Tulia, and the problem with most of the task forces in the state of Texas, they're created as an entity, as a 
as a corporation that more or less stands it alone. It's not in the chain of command of DPS or any state agency. It's tempting to think of Toya as just some rural, weird remnant of the distant Deep South past. The truth is, Toya is the cutting edge of modern drug law enforcement. And you got this task force out here operating like a pit bulldog or a Rottweiler that's supposed to be on kind of a leash, but it's running all over town trying to find any kid it can to bite. Yeah, I know I was thinking about it because I was black, no black guy, and the Spanish and the black, we we in big, big trouble. Sergeant Lou Daigle receives a call about a naked guy walking into a restaurant putting ice up his butt. If the government really wants to stop drugs from coming into California or into the United States, it could be Sherm comes from people dipping Sherman cigarettes into vials of PCP. It bothers me to no end that so many young people are on Sherm now. Hey, Sherm is one of the worst drugs that I've ever seen in my life. Seeing somebody, seeing somebody that used Sherm, whoa. Your mamas will call your daddies when they call my daddy, oppressing my million times they color me. Um, I'm saying guys get butt naked and run down the street. Butt naked and wallow in the dirt and the mud. Church well pimp and board back or slap up. Hold your hand. Oh, 
tell you that drugs like PCP or crystal meth should be made available to the public. But how do you stop things that people can cook up on their own? People have learned that they can cook up drugs, and so they're experimenting now more. And I believe we will have a whole menu of new drugs, and these drugs will not be regulated because the government has driven drugs underground. These cool kids that marijuana is just as dangerous as methamphetamine, and kids have tried marijuana, and they recognize that it's not a dangerous drug. And then they go and try methamphetamine, and, you know, now we're back to kids and their understanding of these things. And, uh, you know, so many of them put methamphetamine then in the same category. Gee, if the government's lying to me about marijuana, they must be lying to me about methamphetamine also. It's a ploy. Well, this drug money funds terror. It's a ploy. Ploy. Uh, a manipulation. Ploy. Drug money funds terror. I mean, why should I believe that? Because it's a fact. A fact. A first fact. So you're saying that I, I should believe it because it's true. That's that's your argument. It is true. Since 9/11. The only thing that's really changed around here in my neighborhood are the attitudes of the police. You know, the gangs are now the new terrorists. And how tough security got since 9 it's like really like, you know, how the drugs coming into the United States now. I mean, you know, I don't have an airplane. You know, I don't have a car that's going to make it with California place to Mexico and back to uh, Colombia. I can't even drive to Colombia. I don't have a boat. It got to be flown or shit. There's a great line in the movie Boys in the Hood where Larry Fishburne is saying, hey, man, we don't grow it. We don't own any airplanes. We don't have any laboratories. How does it get here? Why does it get here? And that's a very good common sense approach that intuitively the people in South Central understood that there was something much bigger than them uh, that was moving the whole drug issue and the drug war. My parents were staunch Republicans. Back in the 80s, the big concern was not terrorism, it was communism. The Iran-Contra affair was one of the biggest political scandals in U.S. history. Members of the Reagan administration, headed by Oliver North, engaged in the sale of arms to Iran. The proceeds from these illegal deals were being used to fund the Contras, a right-wing guerrilla group that Reagan referred to as his freedom fighters. The Contras were fighting the Soviet-backed Sandinistas for the domination of Nicaragua. The Iran-Contra is very important in history. We have to remember the fact that Iran-Contra, its mandate was to investigate the sales of missiles to Iran. Former DEA agent Celarino Castillo not only fought in the international effort of the American drug war, he also had the rare opportunity of carrying a camera recording some of the regrettable actions of the DEA and CIA while they supported President Reagan and Oliver North's Contra movement. George Bush Sr. came to Guatemala on January 13, 1986. And he approached me and asked me what I did uh, there at the uh, U.S. Embassy, what my job description was. And I told him I was a DEA agent working uh, uh, international narcotics investigations. And I told him, look, 
You know, we have gathered intelligence that the cartels are involved in drug trafficking down in El Salvador. And then he just smiled, shook my hand, and, and walked away from me. And it was then and there that I knew that my government knew that these atrocities were occurring. They were so concerned about giving the guns to Iran and all that stuff. The question should have been asked about all that cocaine flying back over, over here. In 1986, on American TV, we were all being fed a steady diet of... We're taking down the surrender flag that has flown over so many drug efforts. We're running up a battle flag. This scourge will stop. But regrettably, back in Central America and in the jungle... I remember down in Central America, we were refueling planes full of cocaine coming into the U.S., and uh, it was a CIA uh, operation being run by the White House. At the same time, all of the cocaine from Nicaragua was flowing into the U.S. Freeway Ricky Ross was at his heyday. The average week would at least be two to three million dollars, almost guaranteed. Some days we would have two and three million dollar days. After Freeway Rick was arrested, an investigative journalist by the name of Gary Webb uncovered a link that connected him back to the Nicaraguan Contra movement. So I read Dark Alliance. I got a, a, a copy uh, personally from Gary Webb himself. And to read the book, it, it, was, it was fascinating for me, you know, to find out that I was connected with the CIA and, and all these high-powered people up in the government. Rick Ross was just lucky. He just happened to get a source who was connected to the CIA. For a long time in South Central, the buzzword was that the CIA was selling crack. I said, no, the CIA wasn't selling crack. The CIA was importing cocaine. Ricky Ross got it, turned it into crack, and he sold it. According to Gary Webb's Dark Alliance, when Danilo Blandone was displaced from his home country of Nicaragua, he set off to America to raise money to aid the Contras in ridding his home from the invading Sandinistas. When Ricky Ross was introduced to Blandone, Blandone was in a position to create a pipeline of cocaine that he in turn gave to Ricky Ross on consignment. Which I like the sound of that, you know, because I was always trying to get to the top anyway. Suddenly, some major sources opened up for him. Danilo Blandone, Norwin Manessas, both of whom were tied to the CIA and the Contras, and Gary Webb did a masterful job of uh, breaking those stories and proving the documents that that was the case. Whatever we're running in the we go I started doing a little research on my own, and I read a little bit about Oliver North and the Contras, because I never knew what the Contras was before. There's legends of, uh, of Oliver North and them actually transporting the cocaine to our country. There's fields. Every piece of document is possible. Talk about being in the wrong place at the wrong time. The first-time dealer and former Crip, Leroy Chico Brown, was arrested with Rick. Chico walked into a DEA sting operation that was set up to capture and imprison Rick and trade for Rick's old partner, Danilo Blandone. How could this be possible? And we read through the documents, and then that's when Gary Webb started explaining to us, and we was like, everything came together now. One of the most paramount moments, perhaps caused by Gary Webb's Dark Alliance, took place in November of 1996. It was a monumental historic event. I mean, the director of the Central Intelligence Agency was coming to watch to face the people. Now, we all know that the U.S. government and the CIA supported the Contras of their efforts to overthrow the Sandinista government in Nicaragua in the middle 80s. Now, it is alleged the CIA also helped the Contras raise money 
for arms by introducing crack cocaine into California. Deutsch felt he had to do something to try to uh, deal with the outrage that was foaming all over the country at the time. And of course, it just blew up in his face. CIA fights drugs. CIA does not encourage drugs. I mean, it was, it was actually one of the most monumental blunders of all time, uh, if you think about it. We have no evidence of a conspiracy by the CIA to engage in encouraging drug traffickers in Nicaragua or elsewhere in Latin America. Deutsch was there because of the Gary Webb stories. The Gary Webb stories had sparked a national furor. I would like to have Richard Ross's uh, brother to speak, please. The United States government turned their head and let this cocaine come into the United States of America. Allowed Gary Webb to have full access. This whole thing is orchestrated. It was near pandemonium. It was about, I guess, 1,200 people in the standing room only in the auditorium. 2,000 people outside listening on loudspeakers. And uh, it was very hard to keep control. I got called on finally, and I said to her very clearly, I thought I was looking right at Deutsch. I am a former Los Angeles police narcotics detective, and I work South Central Los Angeles, and I will tell you, Director Deutsch, that the agency has dealt drugs throughout this country for a long time. Uh, I was able to name operations. Director Deutsch, I will refer you to three specific agency operations known as Amadeus, Pegasus, and Watchtower. I have Watchtower documents heavily redacted by the agency. I was personally exposed to CIA operations and recruited by CIA personnel who attempted to recruit me in the late 70s to become involved in protecting agency drug operations in this country. He stumbled and stammered and wrung his hand. If you have information about CIA illegal activity in drugs, you should immediately bring that information to wherever you want, but let me suggest three places. The Los Angeles Police Department. And of course my response was, I started there 18 years ago, sir, and they tried to kill me. Now what do you want me to do? If this information turns up wrongdoing, we will bring the people to justice and make them accountable. The crowd started chanting, we told you, we told you, we told you. And it was a great moment of unity. And it was a healing moment for me because I'd been out alone for 18 years and didn't really know that that kind of support was there for me. The average person in South Central Los Angeles did not know anything uh, about really how the CIA worked. They had an intuitive sense. If you have a private network run by George Bush and Ali North, not the CIA, you won't find the records in the CIA. They're not there. They're in these private privatized intelligence agencies. Will you pursue that? Will you pursue Ali North and George Bush and the evidence, massive documentation? All these gentlemen, like this gentleman here, the co-defendant of Ricky Ross. They needed the money to finance the war in Nicaragua. They had the link. We know that from records now that they send Landon, who was a CIA operative, CIA, to school for marketing. Marketing the product, which we now know is cocaine. Man, Ricky Ross is waiting to get sentenced Tuesday. And she go, what is judge going to say to us come Tuesday? Uh, may I just say that the a question which was asked of us by the judge was, was Ricky Ross ever a agent or a contract employee? I already knew that from the beginning of, of, of dealing with Danilo Blandone that he was sending supplies and things of that nature, computers, 
and guns in Nicaragua to fight a war. Ricky had already served a five and a half year sentence for dealing crack, but was now given a second 20 year sentence after being set up by his former partner, Blandone, while Oliver North walked away as a hero, wealthy and free to try his hand at politics. Oliver North was uh, being promoted by the Christian Coalition, and to them he was the last white hope that uh, they were going to have for a right-wing um, Christian to run for U.S. Senate in Virginia. During the 1986 Kerry Commission, Oliver North's crimes were exposed to the American public, and yet today Oliver North is not only a free man, he has his own show on the Fox News Network. It's amazing that uh, Oliver North has his own TV show, and, and hopefully when I get out, I plan on have my own. How does a federal agency like the CIA exert control over local law enforcement agencies? The way it's done, uh, which I saw firsthand at LAPD, there are networks called the Narcotics Intelligence Network, or now it's called Clearinghouse, where agencies who are doing a drug case don't step on each other's toes. Every time the police go invaded, I know Rick used to get calls and say, um, you know, they covet. We actually saw that here in 1986 uh, with major task force investigations of Freeway Ricky Ross. They had search warrants for 19 locations that were prepared one night, and by the time they got there the next morning, all 16 locations had been cleared out. Uh, and that means that obviously there was a leak. And that's the way the CIA protects its share of the drug trade. Uh, just one night, uh, I got a tip from Danilo not to go over, and uh, this so happened to be the night that they raided. Crack use spread like wildfire in the early 1980s. And in Los Angeles, a drug dealer known as Freeway Ricky Ross was in the middle of it. Prosecutors called Ross the Walmart of crack. He made millions in the early 80s, dealing to Los Angeles street gangs. The United States Sentencing Guidelines and the federal sentencing system uh, rewards those who get others involved in criminal conduct. And that's what Landon did. During the exact same period that Freeway Ricky Ross was at his heyday, home values in South Central Los Angeles were tanking. People owed $100,000 on their home. The place was a war zone, dead bodies in the backyard, prostitutes in the front, drive-by shooting. I mean, it was horrible. And people walked on their mortgages because they couldn't sell the houses. Uh, and tens of thousands of homes were moved, literally for 10 and 20 cents on the dollar after people abandoned their mortgages. We call that ethnic cleansing. There was a greater plan to, to, to put churches, to put liquor stores, gun shops, uh, and, 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 and cocaine, drugs, into the ghetto, into the neighborhoods, and drive the prices down. And they pretty much did a good job of that. Real estate in, in California, which we considered Compton, Watts, East L.A., South Central, where the drug-infested gang killing the highest rates in the country, and families really start moving out of the inner city. So way out, I'm talking about 70 miles out of L.A. to get rid of. I'm talking about the four men where they promising people that they're going to build up jobs and everything especially like in, in, in the 80s. It's a big thing about moving to the Marino Valley. You're going to have all these big corporations come in. It never happened. 
people actually moved out there end up losing everything because the big corporations never came. And then a lot of investors came back here and started buying property for so cheap, cheap prices. And now the property value is sky high. You can't even afford to live in Compton and Washington World without spending $300,000 for a home that my mother then paid $9,000 for. Prevailing view on Wall Street is anyone stupid enough to buy drugs deserves to die. Uh, and if you can make money from them while they're doing it, that's great. And if that's imposing a crime wave on a community away from Wall Street, that's okay. There's no drug crime on Wall Street. One of the important facets of the discussion should be what I call conspiracy theories. There are lots of folks out there, and there are books written on this by people who are in a position to know, former DEA agents, former CIA operatives, things like that. And they tell stories about huge amounts of money, large-scale corruption in the big parts of government, etc. And are these stories true? And the answer is, of course, I don't know. I don't have access to any particular information more than anyone else does. However, ask yourself this question. If you're going to have a million dollars in cash, how much corruption can you buy at any level for that million dollars? And the answer has to be quite a bit. On December 10, 2004, investigative journalist Gary Webb was found shot in his apartment. No! He's lying! No. When? Saturday. Oh, man. The Internet was set ablaze with conspiracies of a CIA assassination plot. But overwhelming evidence of the suicide soon put the theories to rest. Well, he used to tell me that, that, that he would come home at night and there'd be guys, you know, climbing up the pole late at night, 12 and 1 o'clock, and, and, you know, at nighttime. And people following him around everywhere he goes. He has, he has cars telling him, and his phone was tapped. And, he was just saying that they, they, they were they were kind of like giving him the blues. You know, a lot of things were going on that, 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 that he didn't really like. And he said it was the government, too. By the way, the head of the DEA, his name is Rob Bonner, who's a friend of mine uh, throughout the first George Bush administration, said, documented that, yes, the, the CIA was involved with the importation of a fair amount of cocaine. Uh, with regard to the Iran-Contra, et cetera. But it just has to happen because of the money. We understand what you're saying. A ton of cocaine is smuggled into the United States of America. Well, they... In cooperation with the CIA? That's what... That's exactly what appears to have happened. When I was a clandestine case officer, I thought I was doing God's work, the nation's work, by recruiting traders in, in varied countries around the world. And what I didn't realize was that I was literally there for show. I was just going through the motions because the traders weren't producing really useful information. Uh, we were ignoring all of the openly available information that would have produced much richer uh, results. Let's jump over to General Manuel Noriega in Panama. General Noriega was told by Bill Casey, then director of the Central Intelligence Agency, that he could have a free run with drugs into America, provided that he allowed us to support the clunchers from Panama. 
That was a straight-up deal. Now, I don't understand why the government didn't use Freeway Rick the way they used him. Set him up to go buy it from the big man and bust the big man. It ain't no, he ain't the big man. He's somebody's bringing it to him. Yeah, nobody. So why they didn't reverse it? Always taking almost to make it seem like he's the man. They never found But somebody's bringing it to him. Who is the real drug lord? What do you say in the conspiracy theorists? Like, I don't know if you're familiar with the book uh, called Dark Alliance, written about the CIA bringing in cocaine into South Central LA, and the whole mm-hmm. Ricky Ross story. Well, you know, I've been working with the CIA for years. I take great pride in what they do. They're very disciplined uh, people of great courage. There aren't many of them. It's a very small agency. Uh, they're out there in the global context trying to um, protect the American people. So I think they deserve to be treated with respect. But the notion that, that they're smuggling drugs into America is just uh, absurd. I think Ricky Ross... Um, simply didn't invest enough money in bribing local authorities. Had he invested in a uh, protection insurance policy at the state and local level through legal fronts, I mean, there are all kinds of lawyers that are willing to sell their souls and happy to take their money and then channel it into bribes. So basically, I think Ricky Ross didn't realize uh, that he could become a pawn uh, in the war on drugs. Are you aware of whether or not narcotics proceeds at some time may or may not have supported contra efforts? Yes, sir. Narcotics proceeds were used to shore up the uh, contra effort. Did you personally play a role in some of the transfer of that money? Yes, I did. Six months after CIA Director John Deutsch came to Lock High School, the residents of Watts were hardly surprised that the CIA found itself innocent of all drug-dealing charges. Today, Ricky Ross remains in prison as the sole perpetrator of America's biggest drug war scandal. And this was an off-the-books operation. It was an operation that was specifically forbidden by the U.S. Congress, and drugs were used together with Saudi Arabian contributions, also off the books. Drugs were used by the CIA to carry out a covert action that had been forbidden by Congress. When Bush Sr. lost the election to Bill Clinton, everyone felt as if a new day were born in America. Now the peaceful liberals would rule, and the tired, corrupt Iran-Contra Reagan crew would be gone for good. Nick and Norm are brought to us by the Office of National Drug Control Policy, also known as the Office of the Drug Czar. Under Bill Clinton, the office was headed up by four-star general drug czar Barry McCaffrey. Clinton had a drug czar by the name of, of Barry McCaffrey. And, and what he did, he was the evil one. Now, Clinton was a good one. Everybody loved Clinton. He played the sax and, you know, he said he didn't inhale. And, you know, you know he, got the, he got the BJ from the prod and everything. And everybody, he was just, like baby. Yeah, everything. Clinton was a man. Less than a mile away from T's place, former President Clinton made an appearance to promote his new book. So many adoring fans showed up that Clinton was not able to sign everyone's copies. Problems today with President Clinton's book signing tour through the Southland. He appeared at SO1 Books in Baldwin Village. I'm all the way from Marino Valley uh, just to see uh, President Clinton. I, I love him and I love what he stands for. But in actuality, he had this evil, evil, crazy, maniacal person that was headed, that headed up the wall of drugs. Now that's the good guy getting the bad guy to do the bad work. 
Back in Austin, General Barry McCaffrey was making an appearance at a fundraising event. The former drug czar was now a regular war correspondent on MSNBC, but he would never knowingly participate in some independent film with a questionable message. Maybe by accident I told the general secretary that I was working on an anti-drug video, which is kind of true. So I donned my Republican disguise, consisting of a golf shirt, name tag, and slacks. Carefully choosing the correct forks and nibbling on some asparagus, I waited for the perfect moment to approach the well-protected former drug czar. Mostly known as a drug czar, and if I talk to the media or talk to the American people, that's the only way they'd recognize what I was doing. In the early 90s, my friends were all quitting the 80s hard drugs and switching to high-quality marijuana. A guy I knew always had pounds of hydroponic, the kind of pie you see on the cover of High Times magazine. It wasn't long until the law caught up with him and he was sent to a prison work camp. Mambo died a few years later. It turns out that this was becoming a rather common story because during McCaffrey's reign under Bill Clinton, literally millions of nonviolent pot smokers were arrested and sentenced. And even if you still don't recognize Barry, everyone remembers Barry's classic, this is your egg brain on drugs, anti-drug campaign. Metaphor of the drug war led to flawed thinking. I was invited a few years ago when General McCaffrey was the drug czar to be involved in a debate. He bragged with a smile on his face that the budget for his office, namely the Office of National Drug Control Policy, was getting an increase in funding from $17 billion per year to something like $18.5 billion per year. Can you imagine how much money that is? You go to children and you say, do you remember your mom, dad, coach, teacher saying marijuana is unacceptable? If I remember hearing that, I'm not using drugs. You know, we have actually done a terrific job in the United States reducing drug abuse. It's down from 14% of the population past month to 7%. And if you expect somebody that controls that much money to be in favor of change, look again. Of course not, because money is power. Our problem isn't that we use too many drugs. Our problem is we've got too much money. Most people today cannot even tell you the name of our current drug czar who works under the Bush administration. We want to expand drug treatment courts that find people who are in trouble with the law because of their addiction and give them an opportunity not just to uh, pay their debt to society, but to get clean and sober. Our viewpoint and our funding was to enhance prevention and education. Of all of the drug czars since McCaffrey, or since Bill Bennett, who was the first one under these circumstances, they all do the same thing. They all talk the same way. They all give lip service to drug treatment, but when it comes down to it and the rubber meets the road, the only money that is spent is for incarceration. The reason why we don't hear about the drug czar, and by the way, the, the drug czar is the son of General Vernon Walters, who was a great CIA hand during Iran-Contra, a great CIA player. John Walters is his name. We don't hear about it now because the drug business is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. The drug money is flowing. People are going to jail. The money's going through Wall Street. People are happy. It's not out of control, and everybody's looking the other way. And that's exactly the way they need it to be because they cannot sustain not only the U.S. economy, but they cannot sustain the U.S. empire, the American empire, without those drug flows.
everybody is out to grab money. Everybody is trying to make money off the drug war on the good side. And, of course, unbespoken on the bad side, the, the people who use drugs and sell drugs, they're trying to make money. The ruling class here in America had to come up with something so that they could control certain segments of society so that they could stay in power. So they created a drug war for the felonization of Americans. So the drug war has actually established a false capitalist economy there that's driven by the money you throw at it. The more money you throw at it, the wilder it gets. Back in the 70s, Joe Pietri was a large-scale marijuana and hashish smuggler working in Nepal. When Nixon started the drug war, he gave over $50 million to the government of Nepal to outlaw marijuana and hashish. Joe witnessed firsthand how a once peaceful Nepal quickly transformed into a society of heroin addicts controlled by a violent black market. I was in the marijuana and hashish business for 25 years. I spent 25 years of my life living in Southeast and Southwest Asia, where I saw the CIA, through their political agendas, allow the production of opium poppies and heroin production in Southwest and Southeast Asia that eventually reached these shores. Why do you think heroin use has gone up so much? Well, I don't think heroin use has gone up. Heroin uh, is increasing. I just stopped. The, you guys are going to keep quiet or I have to go do this. Back on the streets of L.A., dealers use little balloons to sell small amounts of heroin. Sergeant Daigle points out balloons on the street that gets clean every few days. When I looked up, I realized I was standing on literally thousands of empty balloons as far as I could see. You can look on the ground and you can see uh, water, little uh, pure water given out. They're all little balloons. You'll see them all over there. They're as common as a cigarette, but that's all heroin balloons. My wife and I had hired a young woman to help around the house. Soon I started finding burnt scent spoons hidden in strange places. Jonna played in a punk band, and as I learned back in the 80s, music and drugs go hand in hand. You know, you just think like, oh, uh, Iggy Pop, Kirk Cobain, you know, they use heroin, maybe I'll be able to write better songs, you know, I mean, especially like, I mean, people who are into art and shit, is more of a draw towards drugs just because you want to experience different states of, mind, of your mind, you know. I mean, right now, it's, about, it's easy for me to get heroin, just walking into a gas station and buying a pack of cigarettes, you know. The amount of heroin reaching U.S. shores seems to come in cycles, but nothing in past history can compare to the influx experienced in the wake of the new war on terror. It's very important for the American taxpayer to understand that Afghanistan was producing virtually no heroin under the Taliban and is now responsible for 80% of the heroin coming to the United States and the Western countries. Now, we invaded Afghanistan right after 9-11, secured the country in November just by coincidence. The planting season for the opium poppy is November, and you harvest in late May and early June. Former DEA agent Celerino Castillo served in the DEA, where he helped to eradicate vast poppy fields. When the Taliban was in, in Afghanistan, they were what they were, but they were definitely against opium crops cultivation, and a lot of it was destroyed. We 
secured the country just in time to release a whole bunch of opium warlords for prison. It was in the news. Well, drug money could soon be funding al-Qaeda and other terror groups. These beautiful-looking flowers are fueling some ugly addiction and terrorism. When you taught everybody how to make money with hard drugs, what are they supposed to do? Stop? Police don't bother them. The U.S. military has other priorities. So, within the past year that the U.S. government has control of Afghanistan, why is there a major crop of heroin that's going to be coming into the U.S. or has come into the U.S.? You see a lot of
It never ceases to amaze me that anyone shopping for groceries will have the choice to buy hard liquor and cigarettes along with the milk and bread. Not that I have anything against those things, but in the 90s, it was the legal substances of alcohol, tobacco, and pharmaceutical drugs that affected my life forever. In 1994, at age 32, my close friend passed away from pancreatic cancer. He had been five years sober, religiously attending AA meetings. Although cancer runs in his family, it will always be my opinion that the nonstop chain smoking played a major role in his sickness. So although 10,000 people died last year from their use of cocaine and heroin, uh, it's estimated that 450,000 died from their use of tobacco. A few years later, at age 47, my brother Kurt suffered a seizure caused by years and years of taking legal pharmaceutical medications used to control his schizophrenia. It's estimated that 100,000 people died last year from their use of legal prescription drugs. My mom, who had battled diabetes for many years, started drinking harder after Kurt's death, and even after surviving an almost complete liver failure, was still unable to quit drinking and lost her life in 2001. And not long after my mom's passing, my dad's drinking finally caught up to him. But luckily for my dad, he told me that the dialysis machine allowed him to drink way more than ever because of how it filtered the alcohol. It's estimated that 150,000 people died last year from their use of alcohol. And I'm not talking now about drinking and driving. I'm talking about just the health consequence of drinking. I'm sure that there are a few people that died last year from their use of marijuana, but there are no documented deaths as a result of people smoking marijuana. Perhaps the most absurd aspect of the drug war is the continuing battle over the legalization of medical marijuana. And they're trying like crazy to come up with pills to help with chemotherapy and HIV. I mean, these are serious illnesses. For cancer survivor Todd McCormick, the right to use medical marijuana has been a lifelong struggle. Todd spent five years in the Victorville prison in a cell, coincidentally, right next to Freeway Ricky Ross. Todd was not caught selling marijuana. He was arrested for giving it away for free to dying people who were not able to afford it. When I was two years old, I was diagnosed with histiocentrosis X. I suffered through uh, 10 major lesions of the hippies histiocytes between the ages of 2 and 10, and I started using cannabis to effectively treat the nausea and uh, the side effects. As insignificant as it may seem to most people, this controversy cuts to the very core of our constitutional right to consume any drug prescribed by a doctor. You know, cancer, AIDS, you know, and they still, all this cancer research, they haven't come up with anything that even compares to, to uh, what marijuana does. Many argue there's little evidence that marijuana has medical value. It's a handful of people who want to see not just marijuana, but all drugs legalized. Drug. Of course they feel good. That's why they take a drug. Does that mean it's medicine? Does that mean that it uh, cures the situation? No, it doesn't. 
Why is our government spending billions of our tax dollars every year to stop people from growing a plant that helps the side effects of chemotherapy? You're looking at pharmaceuticals. This is a multi, multi, multi-billion dollar industry. But if you look at all the pain medications, all of the drugs that we use, probably 80% of them could be eliminated by people using cannabis. Meet Dr. Claudia Jensen. She might look like a soccer mom and most certainly does not get high. But when it comes to giving her patients what she believes to be the best medicine available, she is not afraid of the bullies in Washington who fight so hard to protect their interests. You even testified before Congress a few weeks ago on the use of, of medical marijuana. What led you to the conclusion that this is a viable treatment for this disorder? Well, that's what patients reported to me, so I listened to them. Marijuana doesn't kill your liver, doesn't damage your kidneys doesn't cause ulcers, uh, it can uh, increase risk of uh, respiratory problems, bronchitis and pneumonia. The risk of cancer is not significantly different, very minimal increase in risk for cancer. It just generally does not have a death profile. As they say, life imitates art, as I received word that my dad had been diagnosed with throat cancer. I had never even seen my dad smoke, but his 40-year-old two-pack-a-day habit reared its ugly head. Ironic, because he drank enough Smirnoff vodka to drown a Russian battalion, but now his life was threatened by something we'd never expected. I mean, my mom and dad voted for Nixon, and they were happy about it, even after Watergate. We're proud that they voted for Nixon. They voted for Reagan. They voted for Bush 1, voted for Bush 2. You know, I mean, when I bring up marijuana to my dad, he just rolls his eyes, you know, while he's over there drinking his, uh, his Getting through this, I'm like the father, is, to me, I mean, something that almost he would have to experience on his own, I mean, until the, the, the barricades that he set up mentally come down, and he wants to open his mind to what you're bringing him with this information. Everything in our bodies is regulated by marijuana-like compounds that our bodies produce. So whether you're talking about the immune system, the nervous system, the digestive system, reproductive system, endocrine system, all of these coordinated body functions are regulated in a homeostatic manner by cannabinoids. In Southern California, you need not drive far to find a medical marijuana dispensary, but because of the continuing tenuous laws, the DEA still performs random busts. It was not easy, but my friend Joe Rogan of Fear Factor was able to convince them that I could be trusted and gained our cameras of access. What we try to do when, when members come in here is that we try to give them an introduction as to what is available. Paul Scott runs a dispensary and knows all too well the risks he faced for doing so. But Paul has AIDS and remembers the sacrifices made by the people before him. My friends were dying. Brain cancer, you know, it was the people early on who were dying. And most people who helped start that Oakland Cannabis Club are dead. Something that could alleviate the nausea. Something that if you're in the house and you're light sensitive because of the, the side effects, you can at least desire something to eat. For somebody that's older, and well, there's no way they're going to smoke some marijuana with you, you know. Um, put it in a little brownie and uh, or a little chocolate chip cookie or something that they like and let them eat it and then kind of discover the effects of it in a sense on their own. Again, these are the different delivery methods of being able to eat the cannabis without smoking it. So if the grandfather who's at home nauseated and in bed and on eating, there is something that you're able to give them that's well-tolerated 
and that will be on beneficial side effects of eating and feeling just a little bit better that day. Big business does not want us to know that we can cure cancer forever at very low cost. Dear old Donnie Rumsfeld, you know, our, our, our chief torturer, chief liar on 9-11, one of the chief liars, was the CEO of Searle Pharmaceuticals. Why would the pharmaceutical companies want you to be able to grow a plant in your backyard that might cure your menstrual cramps, might solve your headache, uh, might give a terminally ill cancer patient, uh, you know, some, some, some chance of gaining some weight and having a tiny quality of life? Uh, if you can grow that in your backyard, there's no net profit for corporations. We already know what net profit means to stock prices. Ten states have passed laws permitting the use of medical marijuana, but today the court ruled that the federal ban on marijuana supersedes those state laws. Polling has shown that a large majority of Americans consistently support the use of medical marijuana. Still, in a 6-3 to three decision, the justices said that federal authorities may prosecute sick people who use marijuana, even if it's at the direction of a doctor. Here we are in the modern world where sick people of all colors fear incarceration because of the medicine they use. Is their plight helped or hurt by what I consider to be the most honest of all pot smokers, people who just want to get high? <laughs> How's so awesome. tobacco? Hello, NBC. <laughs> Nobody's here for any joint. That's a Nobody is here for one joint. I will guarantee you, you're not here for one marijuana cigarette because the law says you have to do it at least three times. At least three times to even be prosecuted. So you are not here. You're the one that said that? Who said who said that? You did. No, no, you said it. Now you are lying. You are not here for one marijuana cigarette. What's your name? I'm here for a couple. Oh, I'm gonna no, I'm gonna tell you. So this is garbage and you shouldn't lie to the sheriff. I smoke weed every day, yeah. Now this is my first time using drugs, so are you supposed to inhale? <laughs> Back in the hood, we were joined by T. Rogers' son, Lucky, who informed us that it was time for us to take a little test to make sure we were not undercover narcs. Well, I found me a bag of blood outside. I'm grateful for it. Man, I'm about to smoke it. You can't return it to the lost and found, right? <laughs> I mean, what would you do if you found a bag of weed? Smoke it. <laughs> Not that right. <laughs> what are you going to say? Man, I found a bag of weed. I don't know what to do. Well, I know. We, we're about to smoke. We is about to smoke. I just found this smoke. Almost everyone I know, including myself, has tried smoking marijuana at least once. So why does our government classify marijuana right alongside of drugs like crack and crystal meth when its effects are obviously so different? Marijuana is the single biggest cause of treatment need in this country by far. The problem that we face is it's more than twice as important a factor in the treatment needs of the country than any of the illegal drugs. And for teenagers, it's more important a factor than alcohol today, which never used to be the case. The people in Washington realized that 85% of all people in the United States of America today that use any form of illicit drug use only marijuana. 
that means that the total numbers of everybody else that uses any other drug would not justify this colossal prison industrial complex, this colossal bureaucracy that we have to fight the war on drugs. We are not going to arrest basically the backbone, the fabric uh, of America today. You've got 80 million Americans who have tried or used uh, marijuana. We're talking about doctors, lawyers, judges, scientists, entrepreneurs, uh, athletes. Uh, we're talking about the backbone of America, the marrow of America that does smoke or has smoked marijuana. Hey, marijuana is Schedule 1. Um, what about countries like Amsterdam where they have not so much legalized but they've decriminalized and they claim that it's helped crime and that it's helped addiction? Amsterdam, uh, when I've been there, you have to cross over bodies lying on the street because they're high on drugs. They're just lying on the, on the corner. You have to jump over them if you want to go somewhere. Less than a week after baking in the sun at Sheriff Joe's tent city, I decided to take a quick trip to see if he was being 100% honest about the effects of Dutch drug laws. When I arrived, I was joined by a friend of a friend who had grown up in Amsterdam and knew the streets like the back of his hand. Yes, we did see drug dealers, but they were extremely polite and always backed away after realizing I was not looking for drugs. And unlike Sheriff Joe, who was crossing over bodies, we ended up having to pay a dealer to introduce us to a single enthusiastic crack smoker. This is crack, man. This is crack in Amsterdam. And the crack. Well, what do you think about the fact that, that you can do this on the streets here without being taken apart? Because we uh, we pay tax for use. Yeah. What do you think about it? Like, what do you think about American drug laws as compared to yeah. these drug laws? Yeah, very harsh in America. Yeah. You, know? you can't even smoke a uh, joint of marijuana. Yeah, no, I know. You get into problems, you know. Here, you get a coffee shop. That's why I don't understand. Why you can legalize this system? You know? Well, what do you think about the fact that in America, like they're filling up the prisons with people that just want to do drugs? It's not right. They gotta use, try another different approach, like taking care of the people you know who are addicted. They give them places to use the shit, and taking care of people who don't have a house to sleep. That's the way they do it here in uh, in Holland. By total coincidence, we found ourselves at the 420 bar on April 20th. Unbeknownst to me, 420 is a very significant date in the worldwide pot smoking community. Uh, my name is Michael Veling. I'm the uh, owner of this uh, bar and coffee shop, which means that you can drink a beer and you can also buy a bag of grass, if you so wish. Uh, I've had this place for 18 years, and I've never had a fight in here. American comedian Tom Rhodes moved to Holland where he became the Dutch equivalent of David Letterman. Mr. Tom Rhodes. People think that all drugs are legal there. It's not true. Um, and actually, marijuana and hash is not legal. It's tolerated, as are mushrooms. So all organic drugs are tolerated. 
I don't have uh, much to say about the Dutch drug policy. Their model applied to the United States would be inappropriate, and we're not going to do it. We're not going to legalize drugs. Uh, drugs are already decriminalized, by and large, in the United States. What have they done in Holland? Well, they realize, of course, that the drugs are here, the drugs are here to stay, and let's try to manage the problem. And they have put in a really effective harm reduction program. You know, in Holland, uh, they call people junkies who do anything too much. If you drink too much, you're considered a junkie. If you smoke too much weed, you're considered a junkie. Which, when I first moved over there and I heard people go, oh, he's a junkie, I was always thought they were talking about heroin. What has happened? Well, the Minister of Health of Holland held a press conference a few years ago saying, you know something? We have only half the marijuana usage in Holland as you do in your country, both for adults and for teenagers. He said, we have succeeded in Holland in making pot boring. Holland has 60% the drug use is that of the United States, and that's among kids uh, and adults, and that's uh, from marijuana and uh, harder drugs. If you do weed and it leads to coke and then you do heroin, that's really the individual's own psycho uh, problem. In Amsterdam, people addicted to heroin need not resort to stealing or prostitution. The Rainbow is a free clinic that allows junkies to come in off the street for a fix of government-controlled heroin and a clean syringe. Heroin addicts are pity, and the government does the best they can to try and get them off heroin. Like um, last year in the papers, Dutch doctors said that they think they should be treating heroin addicts with heroin instead of methadone and morphine because they think that just makes the addicts addicted to those things. Methadone withdrawal is like five times as long as heroin withdrawal. I guess also the point of methadone is to like, you know, get yourself out of the hole. I don't support that all drugs should be legal. You know, I don't think heroin should be legal. I, I think it's, uh, I think it ruins people's lives. And uh, I've seen cocaine ruin a lot of people's lives and, and turn good people into total assholes. I think that. Um, the organic basis for the drug law that Holland has, and, you know, their entire system isn't right, you know, but, you know, the fact that, you know, mushrooms and marijuana and hash, you know, it, it, it comes from the earth, so they've got more of a, a Christian idea of creation and what is supposed to um, be used to help us get along in this little journey. The Dutch drug policy is very successful. If you compare the statistics of this country and you compare them to other countries where there's a much less lenient policy on drugs, you would be surprised to find out that Holland has very low figures. Amsterdam is not legal, it's semi-legal. When you go into a coffee house, you can smoke a couple of marijuana cigarettes and hashish, but still against the law to sell it and to have large quantities. But it doesn't work. The English system has never worked. You should never, never legalize drugs. Okay, Kevin, you did it. Did it. I remember it wasn't long after looking down my nose at Jonna for her heroin addiction that I found myself addicted to prescription painkillers. A series of childhood accidents from motocross, gymnastics, and high diving had left me with compressed discs in my lower spine. Now my biggest nightmare of all time has become true. 
Not only was I an addict, but I had something in common with Rush Limbaugh. Life can be cruel. The joke was really on me when I learned that quitting Vicodin and Oxycontin could actually be harder than quitting heroin due to the high precision of synthetic opiates. I, Rush Limbaugh, as far as I'm concerned, he's, he's a victim. He's a victim of this uh, of the drug war because he, he got hurt. He got addicted to Oxycontin, which is like heroin. Apparently, it's harder to get off than heroin. And he got so addicted that he had to go illegal. But Rush, personally, I, 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 I have compassion for him, and I feel sorry for him. And I would like to turn him on to pot, you know, if he needs something. To, to to mellow out, you know, smoke and drink, rush. That's what I. That's that. That's my prescription to you. Most people don't realize this, but the CIA has the highest uh, alcoholism, adultery, divorce, and suicide rates, other than the post office. Um, most people at CIA drink too much, and I know for a fact that there are people at CIA that smoke marijuana, and they're just hoping they won't get caught on their next lie detector test. Marijuana is, like alcohol, something that people want to use. And I have no problem with it as long as they're not driving a car. Ask yourself, what would happen if the United States of America or California or any of our states were to treat marijuana like alcohol? This right here is one quarter ounce bag of the Jack Hare. And the answer is three things would happen right away. All of them would be good. The first thing, and I'm in California so I can talk about my native state, the first thing is that the taxpayers of California would save about a billion dollars that they spend in one year alone to try to eradicate marijuana and prosecute and incarcerate nonviolent marijuana users. And by the way, marijuana is the largest cash crop in the state of California today, even though it is illegal. So you can tell how successful we are at that. Number two is grapes, by the way, if you care. The second thing that would happen is we could tax the stupid stuff and generate revenue of at least a billion and a half dollars every year just by the tax base. Not cheap. Now, already we have a change in our budget deficit in California alone for a year of about $2.5 billion. Imagine what we could do with that money. And the third thing, it seems to me, trumps the first two. The third thing is we would make marijuana less available for our children than it is today. Why? Because the alcohol is regulated and controlled by the government, and illegal drug dealers, illegal and marijuana dealers, control the sale of marijuana. And as a result, they don't ask for ID. I think if you wanted to start to do this, and that's why the DEA has fought it so hard, you would start by legalizing medical marijuana across the board. But you've seen how hard DEA has fought. They'll stop shipments of birdseed coming across the Canadian border that don't even have any uh, THC content or can't get you high, can't grow any plants. And they will fight that tooth and nail because that's how flimsy the facade of the drug war is. Hey, you want to come home to your home? smoke marijuana, then that's your business. That's not the government's business. Our government has always told us it's addictive and, you know, and so forth, but uh, marijuana has been around for many, many, many years and has never killed anybody. What's your opinion about medical marijuana? Well, that's a tough one. Tough one. If it's issued by uh, pipe controls by a physician, I don't know if I oppose that. If someone's dying of cancer, and that's going to help that person, 
I don't know if I'm strictly opposed to uh, medical uh, marijuana you're probably talking about. It can help the dying patient, but it has to be dispensed by a doctor, just like codeine and other drugs. Doctors dispense other drugs. So the secret through all of this, I've been doing this for a lot of years, the secret boils down to one thing. Prohibition never works as well as regulation and control. Let me say that again. Prohibition never works as well as regulation and control. That doesn't mean that we abandon our children to the cocaine use or marijuana use or anything else, but as soon as you prohibit something, you give up all control. And now the only people in control are the illegal drug sellers, and they do want your 14-year-old daughter to get hooked on cocaine. Before, when you went to buy marijuana, you didn't find cocaine or heroin there. You didn't see guns. It wasn't a, a, a violent scene. It was, that's why it was easy to catch us. Due to the lack of profit potential, another category of naturally occurring drugs is rarely discussed when debating the drug war. I just wonder what your opinions are about the, you know, the use of the ritualistic drugs. Um, it's a question I rush to avoid. Um, um, it's, you know, I, and I don't mean to be critical, but it's such an, a tiny, silly thing. It's almost not worth timing on. The Native Americans have had to fight long and hard for the use of peyote for their religious practice. Uh, shamanism is the oldest religion in the world, and the war on drugs directly imposes itself upon our religious freedom and the, in fact, what is the oldest religion known to humankind. Tribal members report a reduced rate in alcoholism, gambling addiction, and even drug addiction for those who go through the ancient hallucinogenic rituals. We um, try to keep our young people from using alcohol and drugs through these ceremonies and telling them, you know, showing them the, the way of life that, that we're supposed to be living. I think probably if there was a claim that, you know, uh, these kind of drugs actually help deal with alcohol abuse. That's probably silly. We had to get our treatment protocols from NIDA, not from malarkey. Thousands of years of ancient tribal tradition now boiled down into one word. Malarkey. Known for being the man who introduced Timothy Leary to LSD, Dr. Gary Fisher believes that the drug war and religious depression are one and the same. The psychedelic drugs have been used to time in very positive ways, and uh, they do not uh, prevent uh, uh, present a threat to anybody except the uh, power establishment. After getting word that my father's condition had taken a turn for the worse, I spoke with a doctor who uses hallucinogenic drugs in order to prepare terminally ill people for the inevitable transition. In terms of uh, the hallucinogens per se, my interest rests primarily in their potential application as a, um, as, as a medical psychiatric treatment. And I believe that they're particularly valuable for patient populations that do not respond well to conventional treatments. Diagnosed with terminal lung cancer, one would be hard-pressed to accuse Pam Secuda of only wanting to get high. The people who are waging the war on drugs have every interest in continuing to do so because especially um, medicines like hallucinogens 
and I think we all agree in these discussions that what they do is they allow you to change your perspective and to think outside of the box that you're closed into. And that's the last thing that this, this power structure wants, is for you to think outside of the box. In fact, they'd rather make your box smaller. And uh, here's an opportunity to have a, uh, a truly a religious experience, not hearing about religion, but to have that primal experience. Of course, your dad and his condition and all of his uh, his, his mindset, his rigidity, would be highly unlikely to accept that. Truth is, a sick person, a patient who is ill, should have the right to use anything that they can use that will help relieve their pain and suffering. Because of my father's beliefs and the laws in Texas, I'll never know if naturally occurring drugs could have helped him through the most painful experience in his life. And in the end, like most Americans, he put his faith in Western medicine and lost his battle with cancer. My father lived an amazing life. He started with nothing and tirelessly worked his way to the top. And even though I didn't agree with his drinking, it was the way he chose to live. As far back as I can remember, my parents, like the rest of the World War II generation, all drank lots of hard liquor. Our country's psyche seems to be one fueled by alcohol, so it only makes sense that the drug war is against anything that threatens alcohol or tobacco. When uh, alcohol prohibition ended, it empowered a new, a new group of entrepreneurs, you know, the liquor industry. The tobacco industry has done a phenomenal job of jumping into the FDA and exempting its product from every single law that would have caused it to get off the shelf. All my brothers, all them did, my mom and dad, ain't everybody else. I'm the only one left. I, they was a drinker. They, uh, Everybody likes to sin. Don't you like to sin? Yeah, well, I don't know. Okay. It depends on how much sinning you do, Pilgrim. <laughs> Ever since my friend Bill died, I had done my fair share of consuming various substances. I thought I had escaped the addictive traits of my family, but for me, the hook came in the form of pain pills. Not being able to afford rehab while searching the Internet, I found a new drug treatment that breaks the addiction to opium. It seems like being addicted is punishment enough. I can't even begin to imagine having the law involved. I mean, how many people have you known in your life now whose lives have been affected directly by the drug? Many, 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 many people. Good, good people, good talented it makes as much sense to me to put this gifted actor Robert Downey Jr. in jail for his cocaine problem, and regretfully he certainly seems to have one, as it would have Betty Ford in jail for her alcohol problem. It's the same thing. But if Betty Ford or Robert Downey Jr. or you or I drive a motor vehicle while impaired by whatever drug you're talking about, be it marijuana, alcohol, cocaine, or whatever, that's a crime. Bring them to court. Bring them to people like me, and we will address their actions. That's an appropriate use of the criminal justice system. The media and the drug war have a long symbiotic relationship. During the last several years, Freeway Ricky Ross's legend continued to grow. A platinum-selling rapper using the name Ricky Ross tells stories that glorify Rick's life as a drug dealer. Ricky even had his own hour-long BTP special, once again proving how a war-weary country has become immune to complete government corruption. 
However, in late 2005, Ricky did catch a break and got his minutes reduced down to a few years. Ricky Ross is really a good guy who took advantage of an opportunity. He, he was an entrepreneur, but he's at the bottom of the food chain, so he went to jail. All the guys that violated the law, that ignored congressional sanctions on Iran-Contra, they're all in power. And George Bush, a guy who never succeeded at anything and is certainly not succeeding at this presidency, a guy who stole two elections, who has committed at least ten different impeachable offenses, he's president of the United States. Secure. I've been violated all my life, so it don't matter. 
There goes the Fifth Amendment. There goes the Fifth Amendment and the Sixth Amendment. Somebody didn't like that. Them coming out of many is just an admission of guilt. So life goes on. Life goes on. Back in Sheriff Joe's jail, the daily grind goes on. And in all honesty, as much as I wanted to hate Joe Arpaio, I was glad that some of the inmates I met were not living on my street. Eighty percent of the cops shot in this area were shot because people are high on drugs. So we want to get drugs to everybody. Let them all shoot the cops. Growing up during Nixon's drug war, I can't even imagine how life would be without this drug prohibition. I often wonder who in my family might still be alive had they used naturally occurring drugs for both their medical and recreational needs. The government claims that the future of illegal drug use is heading towards synthetics, such as prescription abuse and crystal meth. This man lives in the most drug-infested area of Amsterdam. Much, much crystal meth here? Uh, no, I didn't. I never heard about crystal meth. And what is it? Speed. Speed. Yeah. Okay. In a place that has adopted a more Christian value towards organic substances that come from the earth, synthetic drugs, like crystal meth, are almost non-existent. Do you want your future to be this, or to stay on a pathway that allows a greedy few to profit from the felonization of sick people? It's a free-for-all on the street. Your kids can go and buy heroin and cocaine easier than they can get cigarettes and, and, uh, and, and alcohol. So there has to be some control. We're not going to legalize drugs. We're not going to do it. You know, we have actually done a terrific job in the United States reducing drug abuse. It's true. No one talks about making cigarettes illegal. So they're not protecting people. They're not protecting society. I can drive stone. I can't drive drunk. But alcohol's legal because I don't know how to make whiskey. Do you know how to make whiskey?
if it wouldn't have been money and drugs, I never would have been involved. But for me, it was a way to get out of the ghetto. It was a way to have the American dream. Well, my message to Ricky is, man, the world's great when you get out here, man. You know, just keep your heads up on this, you, man, and you're going to be okay. He's been fun all these years. I mean, Ricky's got a real good sense of self. I love him, man. I, I really love Ricky Ross. I think he is a great person. Ricky Ross is doing George Bush's time. <laughs> Higher, baby. Uh, get higher, baby. Uh, get higher, baby. Uh, get higher, baby. Uh, get higher, baby. Uh, what, what are your opinions about um, drugs like mushrooms and ecstasy? I love mushrooms. Why am I violating the law to eat mushrooms? Uh, oh, listen, what's the uh, white, white boss, vision, dreams, and passion going through my mind? And all the while I think of you. Five black lines, a very strange reaction for us to unwind. The more I see, the more I see. There's something of a phenomenon telling your body to come along. Because white light lines blow away. Blow. have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe, all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family.
evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Melody Cedarstrom, and you're listening to Financial Survival. I'm here with my co-host, Alfred Addis, to bring you our opinion and commentary on today's economic and political events for Monday, January 26, 2015. Good afternoon, Al. Well, Melody. Get used to that 2015 over the weekend. I'm working on it. All right. Did I say 15 or 14? No, you said 15. <laughs> now you were complaining about it on Friday. I know, okay. I know. You know, a couple of days off. I wondered if that kind of smoothed the, the transition. 2015, 2015, 2016, 2017, You know, again, it really does sound like something out of Buck Rogers. I know, it's yeah. weird, isn't it? Very bizarre. Well, the numbers for gold are not very bizarre today. We had a pullback today. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, I, I'm not sure what the, the trades were today, the volume on the market. But, uh, I mean, my gosh, they're closing up the whole northeast from, you know, north of Philly all the way up through uh, New York and Boston and everything for this massive snowstorm that is uh, going to be hitting I guess it's already started and going in through uh, tomorrow uh, Boston and reports of New York uh, supposedly to get you know, anywhere from two to three feet of snow a historic snowstorm we'll we'll see if uh, those numbers are correct uh, come Wednesday and Thursday but uh, um, so certainly a lot is has been shut down of course, uh, state of emergencies from New York, I mean, from New Jersey to New York to Connecticut. And uh, so we have gold down today, down 1370. Down 1370 at 1281.40. You have silver, and that just went down here in the last uh, hour of trade, really, down 43. At 17.97, it broke that. It was at 18 most of the day. Platinum was down 17 at 12.50. Palladium did manage up five at 7.83, 783. USDX today is trading down 0.19 at 94.80. And crude oil down 45, 45.14. And the paper markets today, of course, I'm sure no uh, no big uh, changes there. You have the Dow up six points um, at 17,678. The NASDAQ was up 13 at 4771. S&P up five at 2,057. 10-year yield that popped back up 1.83 at Point zero one to the upside. So, um, I guess the big news today, Al, was mainly on um, the elections yesterday. Um, there's some other things uh, going on in the news. We can talk about that uh, um, here after the break. If you just want to, you know, go right into the uh, the Greece elections, and yep. there's certainly an upset. And uh, you I know, I think it's an upset. I think. Well, it's a surprise, it's a surprise, perhaps. Everybody expected they were going to win, but they won with uh, they won handily. It was not a close wasn't a close call. It was nine percent difference. They hadn't counted all the votes, but there was a nine percent advantage for the uh, the, uh, the anti-austerity party, which I call the Greek Party Party, because anti-austerity means they don't want to pay their votes. They just want to party on. They don't want any old bill collectors uh, 
you know, killing their buzz. So in any case, the anti-austerity party won, and Greece rejected the harsh economics of austerity. Again, what the, I'm reading from the article in the New York Times. Greece rejected the harsh economics of austerity. Austerity means paying your bills. So that's what it's all about. On Sunday, and sent a warning to the rest of Europe as the left-wing Syriza party won a decisive victory in national elections, uh, positioning its tough-talking leader, uh, Alex, Alexis uh, Zippus, um, to become the next prime minister. Now, this is interesting. And this is what's this is the significance. On one level, we can sit back and say, "Who cares?" You know, Greece had an election, and somebody got elected, and somebody got voted out. So what? Well, it's because <clears throat> the New York Times says they sent a warning to the rest of Europe. And this is the significance of the Greek election. Is there an element of contagion in this election? The big question is, Greek is essentially saying, look, we can't pay our bills. We're not going to pay our bills. We want you you people in Europe to agree to cut our bills by at least 50%. And they'll probably want some other concessions besides that. But they want to write off half of whatever it is they owe. Not everything, but half or more. But somewhere in the neighborhood of 50%. Well, okay, what if Greece does that? It means that creditors are going to take a loss. That's one point. But the larger point is what happens to Italy and Spain and Ireland, maybe even France, countries that already have a significant debt to greater or lesser degree. That's maybe not so much France, but uh, Italy, Spain, Ireland. Are they going to sit back and say, well, look, if you're going to let Greece get away without paying its bills. How come we have to pay ours? And that's the danger here. We have this threat of contagion. Because if this catches on, the nations or governments can stop paying their debts when they're overly indebted and just say, heck with it, we're not going to pay. How are we going to stop that? What if that, what if that takes place and goes viral, essentially, in other countries say, well, we're not paying our debts either. Greece is setting an example here, and other countries are watching to see if maybe they could get away with this too. And the creditor nations like Germany are sitting back and saying, oh, my gosh, if all these people stop paying their debts, what happens to the creditors in Germany? The answer is they're going to lose their assets. That's what, that's the answer if, if enough of these countries. So there's the significance of the Greek uh, anti-austerity party winning this election, or at least it's one of them. Appearing before throng of supporters outside Athens University late Sunday, Mr. Zippus, 40 year, uh, years old, declared that the era of austerity was over and promised to revive the economy. Now, that's really interesting. I don't know. Can he do that? Can he really revive the economy, refuse to pay his bills, and use the money he's not paying to his creditors to revive the economy? It's not impossible, but it'll be interesting to see. He also said his government would not allow Greeks, Greeks, Greece, Greece's creditors to strangle the country. Um, Greece will now move ahead and hope 
uh, with hope and reach out to Europe. And Europe is going to change. The verdict is clear. We will bring an end to the vicious circle of austerity. Now, <clears throat> Mr. Zippers is doing something very interesting here. This guy is bold, right, or desperate, hard to say. But he's not simply saying, look, we need to stop enforcing this debt on Greece. He's trying to argue that they need to stop imposing that debt, enforcing the debt 